1: Get started today at try That's trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.
3: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by the Great Courses Plus, Bespoke Post, Squarespace, and Blue Apron.
4: And we're back. And we have company. Say hello, Rich. Hello, Rich. All right, don't steal the show. We're going to get back to you in a minute. (laughs) Not a lot of housekeeping to do in this cold open, but we did want to point out a couple of quick corrections about last week's show on Parashaney, Michigan.
1: Yes. First things first, the Edmund Fitzgerald went down in Lake Superior, and we implied, well, Scott did, that it sank in Lake Michigan, I believe. Finger pointing. Which, well, just for the record, I just want to put it out there. Really, I can't remember if I said it was Michigan or Huron, so now we're going to get more emails about how, (laughs) no, we said it sank in Lake (laughs) Huron. I know, but <laughs> it's, it's, we probably didn't get that right. But what yeah. we went to say is that all those lakes are great. Aren't yes, they? they are. Yeah, great. And, and it sank in one of those. So anyway, uh, which, superior. But it was one of those slip ups that sometimes happen when we get very conversational and when we're having fun which uh, most of you, probably 60%, really enjoy about the show, and away from our fact-checked outlines. So that sometimes happens. So rest easy, Michiganers and Naval Lore experts.
4: Yes, but special thanks to listeners HK, Carly Grimm, and Steve Leto for bringing that faux pas to our attention. And also for being downright nice about it. We picked up a lot of new listeners in the past few weeks, and we want to say thank you so much for checking us out. Please tell your friends about us.
1: Yes, and visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com, where we have an abundance of t-shirts, hats, stickers, and other stuff. Or you can check us out at Patreon.com slash AstonishingLegends if you'd like to support the show in other ways. Every little bit counts. Okay. Little hand says, time to rock and roll. (laughs)
4: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess and Richard Haddam.
1: What do you look like?
4: It depends on who's
1: looking. Indrid cold to Richard Gere's character, John Klein, in The Mothman Prophecies.
4: We're so excited to have screen and television writer Richard Haddam in the studio with us tonight to discuss his work pinning The Mothman Prophecies and his philosophies on the unknown. All right. It's been a long time since we've had an actual guest in the studio.
1: No, and it, it kills two birds with one stone because we often get requests to do follow-ups or just touch on a subject that we covered before, That especially the popular ones. Yes. The Mothman cycle, it was, was pretty popular, creeped a lot of people out. And we were fortunate, though, to get the screenwriter of that movie, Rich Haddam, to be joining us here. Now, we looked on the name and we were kind of discussing it. It's like, wow, I wonder what he thought about that not fully realizing that I had probably met Rich at college years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. It's that Venn diagram, as we were saying. It's like we were in different circles connecting here and there. But yeah, I think really. we
2: figured out, like we've been in the same room at least twice. Oh, I'm sure, yes. <laughs> Without, Without the, the, the knowing one, each other.
1: <laughs> that now... fun weird thing, he leaves a coaster and I pick it up for a later use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah something something <laughs> kind of strange where there's a connection.
4: Rich, so why don't you tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, Well... So much will come out during
1: the interview. <laughs> Un- unintended and unrelated. Uh, yes, it's yeah, almost, you know why,
4: why,
2: you know, why front load this thing? But, yeah. <laughs> um, but as you know, Forrest and I went to USC film school right. at the same time. Didn't know each other then. Yeah. I barely knew anyone.
1: But we had mostly the same friends. we well, a lot yeah, of the same friends. But in a way that indirectly leads to
2: why I'm even here. Yeah. Because first I got a tweet you were kind of asking me how, what was the genesis of all of us sitting here around this uh, yes. this lovely dining room table? <laughs> right. You know, someone had tweeted me asking about something in the movie about either lines or philosophies or something. And I answered them, but that never happens. No, and I think it was probably one of our listeners, wasn't it? Scott? was. Yeah, yeah, right. So after answering, sort of having this back and forth discussion, I finally said, who, What? why are you?
4: Wh- <laughs> why how, are you even asking what me What happened? How did anyone find me? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah exactly. Like, like w- w- why this all of a sudden? And she's like, oh, I was listening to this podcast and they were discussing uh, the Mothman prophecies and they had mentioned the movie, but they were talking about the actual legend. Yeah. And then I said, what's the name of that podcast? <laughs>
1: <laughs> was, and that's
2: when my life changed. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> and not all for the better, but interestingly no. enough. And I'm not yeah.
2: the only person who, who has a story like that. Yeah, right. When their life changed because yeah. of Astonishing Legends. Yeah, so, I don't know. What, so, I <laughs> right. so I checked it out and then uh, started listening and had listened for about five minutes to the Mothman episode. And already you were calling me out and saying... Hey, you know, in the movie, it's really good, and I'm like, oh, so someone who's interested in the legend also yeah. liked the movie, which is not common, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right? A,
1: right. That's a Venn diagram that doesn't happen.
2: Yeah, no, it really doesn't. People are either really into the to the true story, or they like the movie. But if you like the movie, you don't even know it's based on a true story. Yeah, frankly. right. Yeah, and and vice versa. So anyway, and you had such nice things to say that even before I listened to the other five and a half hours, <laughs> <I think laughs> you're <at least>.
3: right. <laughs> One of the shorter. We're a little shows. long-winded. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I tweeted you. How odd that we're even saying
4: the word
3: "tweet." Yeah, it's a yeah, This tweeting. is now part yeah. of our lives. But yes. anyway,
2: so I got in touch with you, and then just a, a brief tweet back and forth. By the and that way, was he's it.
4: gesticulating towards me, Scott. Oh, oh yeah, yes, about All the right. tweeting.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of. There's <laughs> yes, a lot yes going we're in a yes. triangular <laughs> position pattern here. Yeah.
2: Picture a human being drowning, and that's what I look like talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Two guys staring and not helping.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. So. Then the creepy thing happened. Yeah. So then hours into the show, Forrest, and I'm listening and I'm in that sort of voyeuristic, it's like, okay, so these guys are, every once in a while they mention the movie, but I don't know them, they don't know me, right. I didn't know you where you guys were located, I knew nothing, I'm just yeah. sort of lurking, but I feel like you're kind of talking about me.
1: Yeah.
2: Because you're talking about the movie, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Then Forrest says something really, really weird. He's talking <laughs> about once. the yeah. way people experience psychic phenomenon right. and people who, you know, if there's more than one person, typically it's one person. But anyway, he's, t- he's saying, what's really interesting is when two people experience something, but then they, stepping away from the experience, describe two different things. Yes. And then he says, I had a friend who was driving uh, with a passenger in their car and there was an episode of Missing Time. When they arrived yeah. at their destination, they were there two hours late. Right. And I'm listening to this story. And he says, then later when this person was thinking back on that incident, they were trying to remember if anything weird happened on that stretch of road during that drive. And all they could remember was seeing, and now I started to get chills. A minivan, now I'm really getting chills. Yeah. Upside down, now I'm pulling over to the side of the road and it's on fire. And now I'm screaming at my... (laughs) At my car going, what the hell is happening? I know those people. (laughs) Yeah. Cause one of them's my wife. Yeah,
1: <laughs> she was the passenger,
2: and that's when reality broke open. And yeah. then it was a big, you know, it was like, I, okay, I need to get in touch with you guys. That story you just told, I know those people. Right. Who are you? Yeah, who are you people?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's not look, it's not that mysterious. It's not like we had totally separate lives, and, and there's a. a it's weird a little connection. mysterious. But I, mean, mean, I didn't no, because, know any well, of the that. Big at the town. Time. That's a big the town. This is the weird part. You guys, that's true, but that the does connection. Happen. Right, There is a connection. I noticed this because. Yeah, I went to USC. I went to University of Washington uh, prior to that for undergraduate stuff, and that is a massive campus of thirty five thousand students. Is that near where you're from? Other part of a region of uh, generally where I'm from. Okay. Yes. okay. Uh, but, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I would curious. consider it sure. Uh, you know, so yeah, Seattle. Everybody knows that it's very uh, beautiful campus, very green and rainy. But you would see people all the time. You'd bump into them. And you didn't know who they were. just like You just recognize faces. And then there's people who are friends of mine that I would never see. It's like, dude, do you have that class? Yeah, I'm I'm by the engineering building. It's like, all right, I'll meet you up. We'll grab a coffee. You never see them. And then there's people you bump into constantly. You don't even know who they are. You don't even have class with them. You're just, for some reason, your pathways are similar at certain times.
2: I was not aware of the proximity. Yeah. And you guys, when I'm listening to the podcast, are in a distant land. Yeah, you're in a <laughs> right. you're in a little haunted cabin in the car. <laughs> Thanks for joining us woods. here, by the way
1: <laughs> <laughs> in, the haunted, in the haunted guest house.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm watching TV. It really felt like if you're watching TV and then suddenly the characters turn to the camera and go, Richard, would you please put your glass on a coaster? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> that's what it felt like. Like literally, it would could not have been more shocking if I yeah. turned around and seen you guys in the back seat of my van. Yeah, <laughs> well, though, you know, terrifying. we did that once, but you never came out <laughs> yeah. of the car. I know, you he never came around. out to the car. He refused
1: yeah. to turn around for the whole trip, and went, oh, we can't blow this. Uh, no, that's of course a, a movie screenwriting trope. Is the, uh, the I, I can't remember what a uh, flashing on it, but it was a news program, and uh, the person on TV yeah, turns I to the too. character. I can't remember the movie, either. not the game. Maybe I can't remember who. Oh, maybe Maybe it is the game. No, you're trying, yeah. trying to freak somebody out. Uh, separately, because now you were starting to get interested in the show and you're about to tweet at Scott, you know, what's going on here? Why are you in my life? Stop it. Get out of my head. My friend, our mutual friend, Rob, who since right. moved to New York, emailed me and said like, hey, you know, we, we know Rich or at least I do, we went to school with him. I'm like, what the heck? And he kind of br- sent a brief email saying like, yeah, I mean, he said, I'm probably more close to him than you are, but... Because he'd heard the show. And yeah, I and, like, he's, I can, and he's very I can very get good you friends. connected. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. He's very good friends with uh, Rich's wife all throughout school, and they have a musical performance interest in common. And he goes, yeah, you remember? We used to hang out. And it's like, well, again, that's that Venn diagram where our circles intersect, but I'm more of in a different circle than Rich is. So... Again, yeah, let's make to, that very clear. Yeah, no, no, yes. we would not socially. Uh, you don't the same want forest in your circles. We travel in <laughs> very different circles. That's the shade in the legend of the map uh, of the Venn diagram. It's not even a color uh, that's assigned to it. It's so strange, but no, we had different groups of friends, but all really in the same larger circles. So what's strange is that 25 years later, here this is happening. Actually, well, maybe 30. And here's though. the yeah, other yeah. thing.
4: And we don't want to out anybody, but I want to have the people on that had the missing time story. But one of them were concerned if he's willing to come your wife's friend we're concerned if he's willing to I talk mean, in public about it look like, I, I won't know.
2: mention his name if you don't want me to but no, I will say this yeah. I
4: know this guy he likes talking oh, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, okay. just gonna say that I, right, right. It's just a question of you know. No, no because it's of, kind of it's, a higher profile. Exactly, individual. and, and, and it's like you never about. know. Uh, <laughs> even
2: though you know, uh, well, I'm pretty high profile. <laughs> yeah, <don't> no, no, <laughs> I don't mind coming on. <laughs> but and are you about are you under lock and key with no. Disney?
1: No. <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. No, no, not. No, the thing is, well, yeah, like if you can out from that, you don't want
2: to get sued by
1: Disney, right? Right. No, the deal is that we've discussed before in different subjects is that. Although this era here in the 2010s to 2020s, in the 70s it was coming out and into the popular zeitgeist from kind of the goofy shadows of the 50s, where it was very goofy 50 sci-fi, and and uh, you had people uh, George, uh, you know, who do these uh, big experiencer kind of things out in the desert. And uh, oh, you know, Georgia Damsky, I'm Georgia Damsky, the contactee, exactly. So you have different things going on, but in the 70s it was kind of coming into the consciousness, but still in the age of Aquarius, kind of woo woo, moo moo kind of things, but being taught. About So then you had Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, and we'll get to this as far as relation to fans of the book versus fans of the actual legend and lore, is that it's two different things. People saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, loved it, freaked out about it, but still, I'm not, no, there's no aliens. I mean, that was cool, uh, what we saw on the screen, but they're not willing to make that leap. And in connection to our friend here, our mutual friend, it's like, well, it's still seen with some kind of a stigma. So nowadays what I've noticed is that people are more willing to come out and share their stories, but you still have to be careful because you still get like, that gets a little echo here. Right. And he's in charge of stuff. So it's like, maybe we don't want to do that. Lots of money is riding on the line. And if he just happens to have an experience, quote unquote, how right. can we trust that? So yeah, we're always very cautious about-, about Yeah, if you, about by the way, if you want to- bail out now? No.
4: <laughs> if you want to reach out through back channels oh, I can that. Totally. I
2: mean, I I can talk to him and again, my sense is he'd be happy to talk about it, but you're right. I don't know. I mean, again, you know, people like us, we think well, everybody's okay with it. Open. Yeah, yeah and everyone's okay with right. this, and a lot of people aren't. So, yeah. and I think on the list of questions you guys had, and one of the first questions people ask me is have I ever experienced anything? Yes. And of course I haven't.
1: Right. Well, that makes three of us really. Yeah. So we're, we're
2: like three soliaries, you know, talking about Mozart day after day. Right. (laughs) Too
1: much of a struggle for us to kind of try and experience something. Yeah. Uh, When
2: will we ever be able to touch the face of God? I I walk
4: this fine line of wanting to experience something, but also being afraid of bringing something home with me from like Greyfriars Kirkyard or something. Uh, It's weird. So why would I believe that if I haven't personally witnessed anything?
2: you know? I, I, I totally agree with you. I went through so much of my life really, really hoping that something would happen. And I, there is one phenomenon I really do hope I get to experience, yes. which is a near death experience. Oh. <laughs>
1: Without going over the line. I, well, the reason
2: you know. I want that is because the people who have that particular experience right. seem to have a pretty good aftermath.
1: Yes, if you've led a decent life, it seems.
2: <laughs> well, it's not. I know what you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The
1: dark near-death well, there's experience. Well, I guess, yeah, I don't know what the percentage is. I think somebody's actually clocked this, maybe somebody at the Monroe Institute, but uh, maybe 20, 25%. There's some people who have a neutral kind of thing. Like, I saw the light, that's it. I came back, you know. Yeah, I, and, I, I, there uh, was not an, a, I a was huge, an
2: emotional, but there are so many people who have Yes, a the, very the positive overwhelming, kind of thing. And, and they go through life and they say, look, I am no longer afraid of death. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not base jumping, you right. know, and I'm not, not playing Russian roulette every night, but yeah. I'm no longer afraid, and I now feel that I have a greater awareness of what the universe is really about, and right. I frankly don't care if it's real or not.
1: Yes. Feeling that way would be fantastic. I see what you mean. Some kind of a, an epiphany, which again, I'm often accused of having a...
4: You're too epiphionic?
1: No. Sorry. We're going to we're going to skip that. Wait. Don't uh,
4: skip it. I love it. it <laughs> no. I came up with a new word. Oh, this is Oh, I'm in. sorry. Yeah. Now,
1: see now Scott cemented this in. Yes. No, it's the uh, uh not yeah. apophenia, but no, basically there
4: it, was a word that a listener, listener called you uh, yeah, no,
1: it, it was a, uh, right. Too credulous. No, no, something. what it is, is is that you're seeing epiphanies in everything. Oh, yeah. so uh, Epiphanic. The, no, it's not even a word. No, the point <laughs> is, and I will look this up on the side and just blurt it out here in the middle of a really in-depth story of yours. You start to see connections, and, and this is what's interesting, tying this back into our mutual friend who saw the upside-down burning uh, VW van, and yourself, and us three here, not having any kind of great experience, but I'm sure if you look back, there's probably small little things that have happened that you've brushed aside. And i talk about this. It doesn't really come up until something jogs your memory. And so like, yeah, the one I've had that was kind of unusual at the time, I've talked about this before, is that hearing the weird growl out in the middle of the open desert at Joshua Tree and a friend was oh. there and he heard it too. So it wasn't just me, but it was this very strange, low guttural, like a big jungle cat, not a dog, not a, not a coyote, not a, a wolf. Not a stray dog. This was like a big cat growl, and we both heard it. It's like, it didn't strike us at the moment of being like, this is paranormal, it's the weird black dog, black panther in the subway kind of a experience. We just looked around. There was no possible explanation for where it had come from, and we couldn't see anything, and it was just like, it's time to go. And then you basically file that away under weird phenomenon you know forget about it but you get massive points for actually leaving after you heard that because that's oh, you know that's well, an enrich
4: yeah. you can tell us about this as a screenwriter but in the beginning of the movie you can't leave you gotta well let's just go to bed
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot of people do they go to the guy i saw somebody try to strangle me in my sleep i yeah. went back to sleep yeah now what's funny is that my position is i think i would have again the rational mind at the time saying there's no rock that's bigger than a foot tall out here for miles So what is this? It can't possibly be coming from somewhere logical and rational. So I would actually go out and start walking around, I think, knowing what I do now, which is basically having the knowledge and not being afraid, like you said, of like, not that I want to see anything or conjure anything or actually run into a giant jungle cat out in the middle of the desert where it doesn't belong, but just to maybe poke around a little because at that time, a lot of people do this. They file it away of like, that's irrational. That's irrational. That can't be happening. And then they forget about it. So what I'm saying is that in light of the one listener's question that wrote in, have you experienced anything? And more specifically to you, what are you afraid of as far as like a big phenomenon? I guess what I'm saying is that looking at myself and probably yourself as well, there's a lot of little things that you don't think about that you filed away. Can you think of anything like that? Strange little item. You know, no, not really. And
2: and I feel like I've been on the lookout since I was about four. So... (laughs) Well, yeah. That actually gets into kind of how I approached this movie and what I wanted to do in terms of writing it because, well, there's three groups of people. The one group, nothing's ever happened to me. Whether you believe it, don't believe it, nothing's ever happened. And that seems to be where we are. Then there's the people who had the one strange experience that is demonstrably strange and they can't explain it and it doesn't fit with anything else in their life. And then there's that third group where it's like, oh, I get weird feelings all the time. Every time I go into a hotel, I'm aware of this, and I've had this. And these people have, it almost feels like they're having daily psychic experiences. And oddly enough, those are the people I'm interested in the least.
1: Really? Yeah. Because
2: even though they may be having a totally legitimate experience, it feels too... Easy. It's come too easy to Accessible. Yeah. And they've had time to work it into a personal philosophy or they've worked it into their personal reality of life so that it went from no question to, oh, weird, I've got a question to, I have an answer. Right. And then that's the part where my interest drops off tremendously. Yeah. I like staying in the, this weird thing happened. It happened once. I've never been able to explain it, yet I've had the courage not to deny it. And I've lived for 30 years, and here I am. And you guys have had some of these people on the show.
4: Yeah, Um, yeah. The guy who
2: went camping, the blob of jelly in the fire, (laughs) and the the Queen Mary people. So, and that was the stuff that I grew up reading and watching on In Search Of. It's always just someone going about their daily life, and then something
4: profoundly strange happens, and that's it. No, it's like the line from your movie, which I love when Richard Gere says... uh, To one of the guys he works with, he's like, it's different when it happens to you. Because he said, you used to laugh at this stuff when it comes over the wire. And he's like, it's different when it happens to you. Yeah, I say that all the
0: time. It's
1: like, you might scoff at it, but it is something that Laura Linney's character, Connie, the sergeant there in in town, says, you know, these are decent church-going folks I've known all my life. They don't make this kind of stuff up. And that's what's disturbing to her is that I don't like this. This should not be happening. And I think maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from a screenwriter standpoint, the viewpoint of Richard Gere is that he's the everyman who now has to face some really challenging questions about his own reality and existence. Exactly. And once you do that, that puts you into a, a select group of people. It was kind of a heartwarming thing a little bit when I saw him at the Christmas festival in town. And he sees the other people who've experienced stuff, and they realize that he's not just some guy from the National Enquirer who wants the weekly world news, who wants a juicy story about some wackos in a little West Virginia town and is going to make fun of them. He's experiencing this too. So now he's part of that group of people like, we don't know what this is, but something did happen to us. Where Gordon's character played by Will Patton is that he's now accepting of this guy because he knows that, you know what I'm talking about. This is real. Something real is happening to us. Absolutely. And that's where the development, the drama in a screenplay in the story comes from is that realization of like, Now you have to deal with this somehow. Or how are you going to deal with this? And that was the greatest challenge. It wasn't a challenge to me because I knew what I wanted to do.
2: It was a challenge for people who were being handed the script and asked to spend millions of dollars (laughs) producing it. Yeah. And then ultimately a challenge for people bringing their dates on a Friday night to the mall to see the movie. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Because the whole point of the movie was there is no answer. Exactly. His character gets where he needs to get but only in a weird way by looking away from the abyss. The minute he stops obsessing, the universe just starts pushing him in the exact direction he needs to go to do what he needs to do right. to have basically a happy normal life. Yeah. But when he's staring right at the thing, trying to figure it out, it's just not coalescing. And I think that is, you know, my philosophy if there is one, but also the secret of the paranormal, the harder you look at it and the more sense you try to make out of it in a weird way, the further you get away from any answer. I have so much to say about this. Oh yeah. A
4: couple of things. One is you're saying the exact same thing that George Knapp said about Skinwalker Ranch. It knew that they were looking at it, that they were studying it and it either was evasive or intentionally trickstery and right. that's something that keeps coming up with we've done enough shows now there's a lot of that nature of looking at it and then this comes all the way down to quantum physics and how things change oh, schrodinger's
1: cat schrodinger's yeah. cat
4: when you're, you're observing it it's weird how it all comes together but here's my question for you specifically about mothman that part of that philosophy of what you did for john klein's character in the movie that came from you or was it also something that you feel like you drew out of keel's personal decisions as it related to the experiences he was having when he wrote the book because he too was having issues with the premonitions were freaking him out and the misinformation oh, right. and, yeah
2: well that's one of my favorite parts of the book the experience of reading that book for the first time it was 20 years ago almost exactly yeah and following along with him as he's trying to figure things out i never read a narrative like it
4: yeah me either It's an amazing book, yeah.
2: It's an amazing book. And and of course, it's amazing also because John Keel is a great writer. And a lot of the people who are fascinated by the paranormal and decide to write a book about it aren't really good
1: writers. (laughs) Yeah, it's two separate skill sets. yeah. Yeah,
2: in my life, the number of times I've had to struggle through a book about a subject I should be fascinated by, and it's written... In such a way that it is totally uninteresting. Like, well, yeah, a lot of people feel
4: that way about so their show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah. Also, without maligning. I, or I guess I am going to malign a little bit, but some people would say that about Gray Barker's writing, who wrote all the stuff in the same area, but that uh, his okay. book was, there was a lot of flowery well, it's language the, and made up details. That's his
1: starting point, though. He was doing it for a laugh. He was yeah. doing it for a lark under the guise of being.
0: Serious. Uh, the, yeah. The, he was would, doing he,
1: kind of a punk thing. The fake expert thing. Yeah. What yeah. do you call that? The not expert, expert talking. talking right, in right. Where he's oh, like doing that, okay. but he's winking at you. And it's very obvious in a in a way, but it's kind of a cruel prank, as we said on the on the show. Right. Keel's writing is very clear.
2: Yeah. And it's also very aware. Yes. He he knows that he is writing about strange things, but he's trying to write about it lucidly, but he's also having fun with it. Sure. Um, I call him the Hunter S. Thompson of paranormal yeah. writing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's I a know. great
1: description. Yeah,
2: because yeah, you really do feel the person coming through. Right. And so the fact that I found the book when I did, actually, to me is weird because this is going to sound strange, but I'd had the idea for the movie before I had ever read the book or even knew the book existed. Really?
1: I wanna hear about that, but hold that thought for a second. This is what I love about the Great Courses Plus, aside from all the great courses, of course. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. (laughs) I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? Well, anyway, I was in the middle of a lecture, and then it was time to pack up and head over to the studio. So I just downloaded that whole lecture to my smartphone over Wi-Fi and listened to the rest of it on the way over here. These courses really can go everywhere you go. You know, that works really well for the lectures that mostly just
4: interest me. Because as a dad with a grade schooler and a podcast, the only time I have to watch what I want to watch are all those in-between moments. And the thing my wife and I both love is that with over 8,000 lectures in the Great Courses Plus collection, there's something for everyone in the family. Our son is fascinated by robots, so we can start him on the robotics course on his iPad,
1: and then she and I can watch The Everyday Guide to Wine on the big screen. Ah, yes. Well, so what's the latest thing you learned in your margin time about the course we're currently engaged with Pompeii, Daily Life in an Ancient Roman City. I'm always fascinated when I learn something extra about a subject
4: that most people don't know about, like the course title, for example. Everyone knows that Pompeii was a Roman city, but what they're probably not aware of is that Pompeii over its almost 3,000 year history was very multicultural during that period, and a lot of key events happened even before the Romans took over. Pompeii started off as an Etruscan city around 650 BC, with a few Greek colonies in the region, but then by the 5th century B.C., all the communities by the Bay of Naples had been conquered by the Samnites,
1: and some communities south of Pompeii had been conquered by the Lucanians. Yeah, yeah, those Samnites and Lucanians never got any good press. But the Samnite influence was really important because they did a lot of development of the city, and they had a preference for Greek architecture and city planning. It took the Romans almost 300 years and four wars to finally defeat the Samnites, and each battle was so close that if they weren't ultimately victorious— the dominant mother tongue in Western Europe wouldn't be Latin. It would be Oscan, which is the Samnite language. Once again, just one factor like that can alter the course of history. Well, if you love
4: learning about the real story like we do, sign up for The Great Courses Plus and check out any of their courses for free for an entire month just by using our special URL,
1: thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You're going to dig it as much as we do. So go right now to sign up and get your free month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's
4: thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Very nice. Hi, I'm Trish, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott
0: Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
1: Okay. So Rich, you were saying that you had the idea for the movie before you'd heard about Keel's book. So you must have heard about Point Pleasant then. No, oh. I'd spent
2: my life reading about these people having weird experiences. And that was my, you know, my favorite genre, you know, ghosts of, and then fill in the right. city state or whatever. Yeah, And I, again, always reflecting on, you know, when you read the real stuff, quote unquote, nonfiction books about the paranormal, people having strange experiences, seeing something land in their backyard, that kind of thing. It happens once, it never happens again, and they're left with a mystery. Someone moves, moves into a house, there's a poltergeist or some sort of haunting, it bothers them for a long time, and then it stops, or they move, and that's it. But in movies, and by then I'd already started my career writing feature films, so in movies, the movie always starts that way. It always starts with Mysterious things that can't be explained. But about halfway through, a change occurs where suddenly the phenomena does start making sense. Right. And the ghost starts leaving clues so that the star of the movie can solve the ghost's murder.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And suddenly the information becomes coherent and the living person is able to process it and make literal sense of it on this side of the veil in a very transactional way. And then deliver to the ghost a favor from the physical side. <laughs> yeah, right. And they wave at each other through the mist and the ghost goes on and the person relaxes and thank God they didn't sell this amazing house, which we'll now appreciate and value. And, <laughs> and, and everything's everything, okay now. Everything's yeah. okay. And just, we luckily found out what the deal was with those bones in the basement. But that never happens in real life. And I'm like, I want to tell a story. Is there a way to write a really scary movie? About someone who experiences something paranormal and does every smart thing. And
4: still doesn't get the answer. And doesn't get
2: the answer. And that's the answer. The answer is there are areas of human experience that will never be explained. But then I thought, that's unsatisfying and I don't know how to do it. Ah. Two months later, I'm in a bookstore, the Bodhi tree in West Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I see this book that I'm holding up right now. Yeah, the Illuminate Press reprint of The Mothman Prophecies with Frank Frazetta. Yeah, soft cover
1: and one of our favorite uh, fantasy painters and illustrators, Frank Frazetta. Right. Boris Vallejo being the other one, but they're very similar. But yeah, that late 70s, early 80s, it was... Really great artwork, great draftsmanship, but yeah, when you see it, it's totally crazy, totally (laughs) crazy, a little bit of sexy, always a little bit of sexy. Legit, yeah. Yeah, You're like, what is
2: it? This is a fantasy novel about you know women with their clothes falling off. Of course, yeah, yeah.
4: (laughs) Naturally, I was curious. (laughs) Well,
2: so I see the book. I've never actually seen the book. I think maybe I've heard of it, but I I pick it up. I read the back. The back is amazing. If if there's a writer alive who reads the back of that book and doesn't see a movie. Yeah, They're nuts. Well, I read it and I'm like, oh, totally. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this sounds like maybe there's a way to express some of what I'm thinking about by telling this story or a version of it. So I read the book. The book is unadaptable as a story in and of itself. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's about as linear a narrative as you're going to get in any of these sort of books. But Still, it's a story of near misses and being led astray. And it's fascinating, but it's not like a Harry Potter book. You're not like, oh, okay, we're just going to do the scenes and, uh, and make a billion dollars. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. There's, right. Beginning, middle, end. We have uh, some people who listen to us, and it'll be subject to subject, of course, but, you know, it's people who like listen to the Skinwalker series or, or Mothman. They say, like, I didn't get what was going on at all. And maybe that part of that fault is ours as far as like laying it out. But it's also, we often say this at the beginning of the show, it's like, this is not a narrative story. These are real things that are happening. These are a collection right. of incidents not occurring in three-act structures. Here's the thing is that there is a timeline, of course, because they happen in, in our real-time space continuum, but that's not going to help you. You're still going to be confused because it's like, this happened three days later. It's like, well, why? why do I don't get that. What is that? What did
4: happen? You're well, going to no be answer. confused just like the people who experienced it exactly. are confused, Like, which goes exactly to the point that you just made.
2: Right. As fascinating as every single chunk of weirdness is within the book, and there's so many of them, I knew that that was the wallpaper, but I had to build a house. Yeah. And what was interesting to me was, again, is there a way to tell Kiel's story as someone who is literally kind of walking through a haunted town, doing everything he can to logically explain what's happening or at least kind of chase things down and lock them up, you know, and keep witnesses apart from each other and to isolate the phenomenon in any way he can. Then in the book, he starts talking about how the phenomena starts focusing on him. Right. I'd never heard of that before either.
1: Yeah. The stare into the void phenomena. yeah, Yeah.
2: And I'm thinking, okay, well, this is brilliant. And then it leads up to a conclusion. Yeah. With the silver bridge. And I'm like, okay, I think there might be a way to take what I've been thinking about and apply it to this. And so all of which is to lead to a question where some people are like, well, you left out so much good stuff or... Some of the stuff you talked about wasn't true. The time frame, it was modern. It wasn't the 60s. Right. And the number of people who died on the bridge in your movie is actually different than the number of people who died in real life. And I purposely falsified things. Right. Because A, there's so much weird stuff that the very idea of doing the true story (laughs) of the Mothman prophecies, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Right. From that perspective, sure. You could do a documentary and use real people's names, but I wasn't doing a documentary, so... The way I always described it was, I wanted to take this snowstorm and use it as a way to discuss snowstorms in general. Sure. And so my interest wasn't in getting every last detail right, but it was taking from this what seemed to resonate with other cases of the paranormal and other people's experiences when they experienced the paranormal and see if I could illuminate what that was and this one central idea, which was the harder you look at it and the more you try to pin it down, the more it turns to smoke in your hands. But if you turn your head just a little and stop thinking about it, it'll form very vividly in your peripheral vision and actually allow you greater insight. I mean, again, it was kind of tricky, but the trick of the movie was, how do I lead this guy through all these experiences? Get him obsessed. Get him so that he's going crazy. Get him so that the audience is like, No, stop investigating. This woman loves you. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up leaning against a tree with a shotgun between your legs. Right. Like Gordon Smallwood. Yeah. That is the way madness lies. Do not give in to madness. Ask the question, but then go home at night and have a normal life. And he starts slipping off that. All he ever wanted in the movie is a normal life. He's married. He's buying a house. That's what he wants.
1: Is a... Pinnacle scene, it was for me, because it's that, no, do it, or don't do it. It's where he gets the message that his wife is going to call at noon Yep, on Friday, Yep, and he goes back to his old house, and Laura Linney, right. the sergeant, calls and kind of disrupts him, and she's like, can I call you back? She's, no, you can't. You have to talk to me right now. And I love that. And Right, she, yeah. because... Because no, it's you're, like, you're wait. The, he, yes, yes, exactly. Jeez, I didn't sign up for call waiting. I could miss this. This is like... <laughs> then, then, then when, it's yeah, going to be wait, another year. I missed year. the call from my dead wife. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So again, if you haven't watched the movie, we certainly encourage you to. You're going to love it. It ages perfectly. Scott and I watched it yesterday, just to refresh ourselves. The tone of it, the writing, everything, is just so... It could be from any time, really, and there's nothing jaded about it, and there's nothing goofy about it, which I personally love, because these kind of subjects can get very very goofy very quickly and it just doesn't but when we watched it that's the tone is that what's building is that like you said he's starting to come unhinged these things aren't supposed to be happening he's a journalist by trade he reports that's his methodology and he's trying to stick with that but these things are way out of the realm of possibility that he's starting to lose it and plus the personal connection is his deceased wife exactly which he's yearning for but trying to set that aside and suddenly yeah he gets a message that if you go back this friday or whatever she's going to call at noon so of course he's drawn back. He has to go back to the old house. That the- but you know, and there's something I like about that, and it, we're just not letting Rich talk at all, but
4: one of, the thing- <laughs> one of the things that I really like about that, Rich, is the way that it connects back to Keel's original book in that there was this intentional obfuscation for him with these prophecies, and because that's what happened to him in the book, and you're conveying it through this story, which is great because you've made it into something that works for the movie, but it also still has that message that was happening to Keel himself about the obsessing about the right. information he got about, like the Pope being potentially assassinated, which he had gotten information suggesting that the Pope was going to be killed, and it turned out the year was wrong, and something was always just off enough. And the more he obsessed about it, the more of these weird prophecies came in, and it's almost like they were trying to manipulate where he was at any given time or place, which I thought was probably not a lot of people would necessarily pick up on. But like the fact that it was making him go away from the town where everything was happening at this critical moment when the bridge was about to collapse, Right. that's the kind of stuff that was happening to Keel himself towards well, as his yeah. the story went on,
2: right? And that was sort of the flip side. And it was more explicit in the script. I'm honestly not sure how clear it comes across in the movie because there were certain specific moments that were sort of passed by, but the whole logic was at the end of the movie, once he pulls the phone out of the wall and it's so funny you say the movie still holds up and yet no cell phones, all about a landline.
1: But there's a connection there because of course the importance of that scene points to the bigger picture, which Rich was talking about here, is that here's what he's been yearning for. Whatever is out there messing with him or trying to help or trying to hinder whatever their purpose is, we don't know, because their motivations aren't human. Now, we're going to get to my favorite quotes in the movie and ask uh, Rich about them, (laughs) but the one tying to this is that here's everything that he's been waiting for. Whatever it is, knows this. At noon, exactly, on this day, at home, you are going to get a call from your dead wife. So he's there, and then at noon, the phone rings. Now, the question is, do you pick it up? And the choice of the character, and here's what you're getting at, Ultimately, for sanity in your own life, you will have to live with the question.
2: Well, yeah. And for a guy who has not experienced a lot of big-time grief, I mean, I know people who have lost very close family members at very young ages. I never went through that. But it's almost shocking to me the overwhelming degree that this movie is about grief and the grief process. Right. And that was the one way I was able... Because people go, okay, so this movie, how much of that stuff did you make up? I'm like, well... I made up the fact that he was married. Right. I made up the fact that she died. All the paranormal stuff is real. Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) so true. Right, right. All the other stuff that gives it context. Yeah. Because here's a guy, and again, in early versions of the script, there were much longer scenes of him after his wife has died and his buddy at the newspaper taking him out and setting him up on a date, and it just doesn't go right because he cannot get out from under That sense. And the thing that remains in the movie, and I'm glad it does because it's a touch point, is that feeling when he finds out that his wife has a brain tumor. Yeah. Out of nowhere and is going to die. And he says, it's like the universe suddenly saw me and said, you. Happy couple. Yeah. The happy couple. I'm going to mess with you. And, and of course, that ripples throughout the rest of the movie, the universe noticing people, noticing him, communicating in some way, or at least in a way that he feels it's communicating. But in any sense, he can't move on. He can't move on from the grief of his dead wife, and then the mystery of his wife is reawakened within the mystery of this town. And he feels that if he solves the mystery of the town, somehow he's also going to be able to reconcile his unresolved feelings about his wife's death. So those two things overlap, because even if you and I don't see UFOs or live in haunted houses, we all have to ask the question, what happens after we die, if anything at all? That's the one thing. And when is it going to come for me? So these are the questions he's obsessed with. And you could just write that movie, and people have written that movie. And what makes it a genre movie is that you take supernatural elements to increase the metaphor right. and just go, okay, so now that we're talking about unanswerable questions, let's talk about the fun ones too. Yeah. yeah, Like injured Cold and all the other ones and take him through that story where he eventually arrives, not solving the mystery of the town, but ultimately learning that you can only grieve so long. Right. And then you have to come out of it. And that fog has to lift. And when that fog lifts, there were scenes in the original script or early versions, again, where... It's Christmas Eve and he goes to the airport and they're like, you want a flight out tonight? No. Oh, wait, there is. There's one seat available. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. There is one rental car left. All these things start falling in place that place him on the bridge at the moment he needs to be there right, to save Connie, to have a shot at a future that isn't about staring into an abyss or an open grave and asking
1: the question why. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Some people never get over that, and they're incapable of progressing and living fully after that, and that's a choice, and maybe someday there will be a catalyst or something that moves them along, and that reminds me of Jacob's Ladder, the movie, Adrian Lyon. Oh, think, yeah. Where, that's a good spoiler. I'm not going to spoil it for you, But but basically there's something that does not allow the character to move on because he can't let go, and he doesn't even know what it is. And so all the demons, all the bad things that are happening that he thinks he's being hounded by and and harassed are actually trying to help him along, but they're trying to scare him into it. So he's just seeing this, it's, it's kind of a horror movie, but there's a very uplifting message at the end of it, which is once you accept that, then things are back in their rightful place. Coming back to something that you said a few minutes ago, one of the things that
4: I found really interesting about having read the book and then watching the movie, you know, I saw it when it came out. And here again, the circle of life and all the circles of intersecting we were talking about earlier, I was obsessed with the movie early on, and that was my introduction to the story. And I had uh, just moved from Los Angeles to New York with my wife. About a year or two years later, another good friend of mine moved there from LA, and I offered to ride with him across the country to help him do the drive, you know, to bring his stuff out. And I was like, we have to stop in Point Pleasant. This was the year after the movie came out. Oh, my God. And so I went there with my friend Jerry, who has been on the show. Actually, I don't know. You may not have heard the episode. The, he's the one that got the bug in his ear. Yeah. Oh, um, I yeah. will not listen to that episode. It's one of
1: your no-go zones.
4: <laughs> yeah. So Jerry, uh, bug in his ear, Jerry and me went to Point Pleasant and stayed in a, the hotel right by where the bridge used to be, and walked down on the riverbank. So there was a picture of me I tweeted. I, I'm much younger, standing on... You can see a, a Motorola pager with the keyboard. <laughs> I miss those. But um, anyway, yeah. but my point was that in watching the movie and then reading the book, I read the book after seeing the movie, and I was convinced because I, I'm married to a writer, I know what goes into trying to tell a story. I was like, there's going to be a whole lot of this that's made up. And it's like you said... So you amalgamated some people, you made up a few things about how they were related. All the paranormal stuff, what you put in the film is actually less freaky than what actually happened. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's overwhelming, the stuff that was going on in that town. Yeah. I couldn't believe it when I read the book. I was like, I can point to every connection you made. And when you, okay, I see what he did here and he did here and he did here. He actually made it easier to digest because the reality of it, like you said a few minutes ago, was too confusing.
2: I got to a point where I had to really sort of choose what it was I wanted to expose the character to. right? And especially with a feature film, you've got a very short amount of time to describe a journey. And so every minute has to count. And yet A couple of things were lost, again, from early, early versions. Well, one of the first things I'll let you know is that when it sold, when it ultimately sold, the company that was producing it, Lakeshore, in their first round of notes, they said, would you please take out every reference to UFOs?
4: (laughs) So you had them in there. Yeah. And I just want to tell our listeners this real quick. The book is the story of what actually happened to Point Pleasant. It's more than just the Mothman. There are UFOs. There are men in black. There are strange characters showing up in town. There are all the strange phone calls, even weirder than the ones you put in the script. All that stuff was happening. So I think it's very interesting that you're saying that. They told you to remove UFOs. They said
2: there have been movies about UFOs. This feels like it has something new to say. So I think we can lose that stuff. So, I mean, I literally had the weird... Kerosene lamp.
1: Yeah. That right, that entered Cold. Cold came yeah. out of. Uh, sure. Woody Derenberger. Yeah. yeah,
2: I have it landing in the road. You can see it. People use the term UFO. And I I don't think it gets talked about a whole bunch in the movie, if it at doesn't. all. It doesn't. The only reference that I noticed
4: just yesterday was there's a passing moment where John Klein, Richard Gere's character says, they've been seeing flashing lights out at the chemical plant or something. Right. That's yeah. like it, right? Yeah, Will, like it. Will, yeah.
1: The Will Patton character, Gordon yeah. Smallwood, yeah. describes being on the road and getting stopped and seeing the character, but, but it's yeah, more visionary. Yeah, but he not say anything
4: about the craft though. He just no, 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 he no. kind of appears. No, Ugh. but
1: we both, because I turned to him and said, is this Woody's story here? He's like, yeah, it's kind of, uh, yes. you know, but it's fashion in a way. And because, yeah, what well, people often say this when they see a, a book adaptation or a real life event turned into a movie And it's like, well, why didn't they have this? Why didn't they put this in? And it's like, you can't put everything in. That was uh, like Harry Knowles was talking about uh, his critique on the Matrix and saying like, well, they're talking about werewolves and vampires. Like that would have been cool. Why don't we see any more of that? Dude, you can't have everything in it. Right. That's your favorite thing. I know. But it's like, even if your favorite thing is UFOs, it's like, we got to stick to the story. What
4: did? So were you upset when they asked you to pull that stuff? No, I actually understood. Yeah. I actually thought
2: that was a really good note. There really wasn't anything about their approach to the actual production of the film, which I was not involved in, Uh that I was categorically against except for one thing. Uh And it's some people's, one of their favorite moments. And it certainly took place in my favorite scene in the movie. We're all here in Los Angeles. So this entire movie was written at a bookstore in Pasadena called Vromans. Oh. (laughs) They it, have a coffee it, house attached to it. Yeah. And so I would go there every day and open up my compact armada. The two-inch oh, thick one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, that big. And, is it still there, the bookstore? Uh, yeah. The bookstore is still there. It's been there for over a hundred years. The coffee place is still there. Where I sat is still there. All right. Get ready for window. pilgrimage. We're
4: going to meet you over there. Yeah. Yeah. We should
2: do the <laughs> pilgrimage. Yeah. I drove uh, John Keel past it when he came to Oh, we got to
4: talk about that next. Oh, yeah. We'll talk yeah. about Keel. Yeah.
2: But um, But it's the scene where uh, John Klein is on the phone with Indrid Cold. And they're having the scary phone call. Oh, because
4: yes, Yeah, it's my favorite scene.
2: Because I was also really into the phenomenon yeah. of phone calls from the dead. Chapstick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was, I was, yeah, yeah, I mean, you got to realize Oh my God, you has got yeah, one yeah. now. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> In your pocket. The, I am known for having chapstick on me at all times. <laughs> and this ah. is from way before the movie. But anyway, well, there's a couple of things. But I, I loved that scene. And it wouldn't have made any sense. But when he asks the entity, Indrid Cold... OK, what's in my pocket? You know, The, the original line was "Cream stick." <laughs> <laughs> what, <laughs> Which is totally is stupid and bizarre, but yeah. I was really grasping for something. What I was grasping for was, how does something that does not have physical form and doesn't live on our planet, right. know what the hell chapstick is? Yeah. And it's desperately trying to describe it. And so a couple things here. It describes what I find most scary about Indrid Cold. And what, the one line I wish wasn't in the movie. Which is? That wasn't in the movie. No, uh, I wish it was not in the movie, but it is in the movie. Oh, it oh, is. Oh, yes, sir. He, he says, he asks a question of Indrid Cold, or he says something and the voice says, I know what scares you. Uh, oh. oh, that is Now a, yeah. to me, that is a well-worn trope of horror movies because yeah. it's coming from a place of, this is an aggressively demonic creature. Right. And it works based on your fear. And what I loved about *Injured Cold, and what I love about this movie is that, and the story itself is, I honestly don't think that was the intention of any of these things, was to scare anyone. No. To me, what's terrifying is that Indrid Cold was trying really, really hard not to scare Woody. <laughs> yeah. And that made him terrified. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, yeah. I will be a person. Hello, yeah. are you from the place with lights? You know, and the harder <laughs> yeah. it tries to be normal, you're like, stop it, you're scaring the hell it's out of me. It's the uncanny me. valley. It's the uncanny yeah. valley, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mo
1: Sislak like, on The Simpsons trying to smile and it's so gruesome. It's yeah. just frightening. Yes. Yeah. But yes. that's the point, and is, I is I it? I
2: love that. I love yeah. that, the way his injured colds phrasing is off and he can't quite- yeah pull it off. He's right. trying to be like the kids at the party and he can't <laughs> yeah. quite do it. Yeah. And to me, that's horrifying and really scary. And so I love the fact that it's trying to communicate, right? but it simply can't. It's the human talking to the fish in the tank. It's the person trying to explain itself to a cockroach. Right. We're more advanced, but that doesn't mean we know how to communicate or make ourselves understood. And maybe that's what was happening. Maybe whatever was happening in Point Pleasant was actively trying to provide warnings through dreams that predicted the future, strange phone calls, visits from men in black, lights in the sky. Maybe it really
4: was trying to say, your bridge is going to collapse, stay off of it. One of the angles that we pushed, and I'm not going to go on a long side tangent about this, but one of the things that we had talked about in our series on it was the idea that the mothman was this escaped creature and indrid cold was like a dog catcher and he if he was coming come down to <laughs> earth to get it back under control or finding have you seen the mothman you know like well, no, we gotta get that guy out of here
1: the reason is that uh <laughs> I love that. If, if you if you put some stock into woody derenberger's story indrid cold describes himself as i'm a searcher i'm a seeker as he's yeah. looking for something and these things tied together was that Maybe there is some kind of interdimensionality purpose to this. And here's a, b- a few other big ideas. Again, this is everything that we're talking about is opening itself up to other sections here. But one being that what the question is, what do they want? And the answer is their motivations aren't human. And that is such a philosophical thing to wrap your head around. What do you mean? It's like, you, you're not going to get it. That's the answer. Is that right. as hard as you try. They're a different creature from another area, another place in time, and you just won't understand it. Well, it's like Rip Torn and Defending Your Life. I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand
3: (laughs) I could tell you, right. (laughs) Right. Or
2: or it's like, you know. And that's such an... How many
4: times have you said that to your son?
2: Yeah. Oh, I said
4: it yesterday about something. Yeah. I was like, you're not gonna... And we're human
2: beings living on the same planet in the same house. Yeah. And you try to communicate with your kids, you try to communicate with your parents, you try to communicate with people at work. How often is that brilliantly successful? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so now we're complaining that the UFO people don't just come right out and show us their cards. Right. Or when we go to the psychic, Uncle Joe didn't quite sound like Uncle Joe. Yeah. Well, how great a communicator was he? You know, it's funny. I saw um, uh, I, I had a, a medium, a uh, you know, someone who speaks with the dead, come out to the house, as you do. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> when you oh, when you first bought it? Like uh, the, no, a couple months ago.
2: Oh, geez. All yeah, right. This is someone right here in LA, and I've seen this medium before, and we, yeah. so we had another couple over, and we all wanted to communicate with our dead. But beforehand, she's describing what she does and how she does it, and you know, kind of answering questions before going into her special place. Sure. sure. But, She said, I had an amazing experience because I got in touch with someone for a client and this person was coming through like they were on a cell phone. It has never been more clear. Hmm. I was almost just speaking the words that I was hearing in my mouth. I mean, it was the dream of every psychic. And the person who I was channeling at that point, she said, was a Zen Buddhist who had literally spent his entire life preparing for death. Right. And reflecting on what that state of being was. And so they were ready. They were ready to make that transition. And when they did, they could come through clear as a bell.
4: Wow. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what I've heard is that they meditate on it and prepare because when it happens, you want to evolve to the next plane. And if you're not prepared, you're in such shock that you miss your turnoff on the highway, <laughs> and then like, oh, uh, back down, and then we're back down to, well, uh, of course, you
2: know. and why do we assume that things work perfectly on the other side?
1: Yeah, well, do don't we don't know assume- how they work, that's the thing, and you assume, right. though, that it must fit, this makes sense to us here on Earth in this place in time, it must work the same way, because that's what I can understand.
2: Yeah, and the dream that once we die, the answer will be revealed, and we'll finally live in a world that makes sense, and things don't screw up, but all the evidence we have is that that's not the case at all. Some people die and never leave the bar in Nevada... Where they got shot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some people see
4: wonderful things and some people see
2: not so wonderful things.
4: We all have a different destination. Again, I always think about defending your life. It's like, well, (laughs) you did it wrong, so you're going back, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or whatever. You never got out or you're trapped or, or Beale Juice, the trapped souls, you know, floating around in the window. (laughs) Right. Right.
1: It's just, well, that brings me to uh, talking about Rip Torn or whatever. There's always a character in the movie and it's, I would say it's a trope, but everything that's kind of uh, either horror or paranormal, you have. To go to the expert. So in this case, oh, absolutely, the expert is the actor Alan Bates playing Alexander Leake, which I believe is an anagram for Keel. Absolutely. Leake. Okay.
2: Yeah. Exactly. As Klein was just sort of an urbanization of the name Keel. Yeah. I would say the three Keels in the movie are Gordon Smallwood, yeah. John Klein, and Alexander Leak. In yes. different phases. Yeah. In different phases, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gordon is the manifestation of the, you know, totally over the edge. Uh, right. Klein is mostly Keel, but he's also meeting a future version of himself. Okay, so and I'll, again, a little background. My dream casting for Alexander Leak was a guy like Harvey Keitel or Robert Duvall. Oh, right. interesting. What I didn't want was a british guy
1: oh right <laughs> because right. in american
2: movies right. you always have to go to a british person yeah to get the lowdown on the paranormal and what i wanted, <laughs> i wanted a well, guy like like in a, in a yeah. stained gray t-shirt who looks like a cab driver who's like oh yeah those books i wrote all right here's what i can tell you i, mean, yeah. I just wanted just the most credible yeah. normal again urban new york kind of non-magical guy in the world. And I wanted them walking through one of those giant old bookstores in New York. And I wanted them saying what John Keel always used to say in reference to his own books. He'd say, well, let's take a look at some of my Nobel prize losing works. (laughs) Right, (laughs) And i wanted him to say the line in, again, in an early draft, they get to the, the section where his books are. And he's like, oh, they're over here in, uh, in a metaphysical, it used to be called New Age, and before that it was called a cult. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's
1: still, still the same shelf, still the same books. Right. You right. know? Well, that no, that reminds me of that character. Again, going back to Jacob's ladder, Tim Robbins is the main character going through. And of course, he has everything explained to him, except his guru, his his guide is not the professor, it's his massage therapist, played by Danny Aiello, who's perfect. Yeah, who's this like New Yorker guy, but he's he's got such simple wisdom. It's so well cast because it's so lilting and comforting, which is what it's meant to be. But Absolutely. of course, he's he's telling Tim Robbins, until you see it that way, you're not going to progress. Danny Aiello also looks after Leon in The Professional. Yeah. Takes care of his <laughs> money. Right, right. right. He's exactly. the guy. Exactly, He's the <laughs> guy. Well, he's my, trust him. Yeah. He's got that, you know. Yeah. See, you know, it's funny because part of this is Hollywood casting, and I could see notes on this from the studio. And it all depends on people's schedules, of course, and where, if they're available and willing to do it. But the guy that I saw is interchangeable with Alan Bates, who plays Professor Leak. Is Brian Cox. And for a long time, for many years, I thought like, is that Brian? No, I I thought it was Brian Cox because he plays those kind of roles. Right. Where he's kind of a little bit cheeky, but knowledgeable and mostly authoritative. Right. He's got to be the authority. And, and believe me, I mean, the,
2: he comes from that generation of actor. You'll watch him do anything. I mean, yes. Albert oh, Finney, course. Peter
1: O'Toole. Yeah, Richard yeah. Burton. Oh, it could have been Albert Finney, yeah. It
2: could have been Albert Finney, you know? <laughs> I right. would have been great. Absolutely nothing against Alan Bates, but it's one no, of those no. tropes. Again, it was a trope. And I thought, if this movie is doing anything, yeah. and if it can do anything, it can be the one movie that says, it's not some British guy... <laughs> In a you know tweed, in a tweed, jacket, jacket, yes, or a tweed jacket tweed jacket, you know, and it's not some evil thing that knows that it's scaring you. This is a new version of the paranormal, which isn't even new at all. Right, and it right. has less to do with categorizing. Now I'll I'll jump in and and say that in, in sort of the aftermath of this movie, I was given the opportunity to write a TV pilot that became a show called Miracles, which of course sounds very religious, but it wasn't. But the one aspect it did sort of touch on was. Our tendency to look at phenomenon and go, well, is it your guardian angel or is it a demon? Yeah, Right. (laughs) Because we want to slip things into moral categories. Sure. Especially when it's paranormal. And if you come from a religious background, almost any manifestation of the paranormal is going to be considered demonic. Right. But what I find fascinating are the people who can resist that, who simply go, this is what happened. It doesn't make any sense, and it is supernatural, but I'm not calling it demonic possession. I'm not calling it guardian angel. I'm not saying hauntings are bad or good. I'm just recording the information. And that's what that show was about. It was about two guys, not a skeptic and a believer, but two people who believed, just one believed that you shouldn't categorize any of this stuff, and the other who said, no, you must. You have to figure out where this stuff is coming from. To me, that was a much more interesting conversation. Because ultimately they, you know, were both disappointed in their, right. their class. Well,
1: exactly. But that's what I love about Keel and writers like uh, Lauren Coleman, who study these things in cryptozoology, is that you may not be able to understand it, but at least we can document it and we can record it and we can recognize the patterns if there are any. Right. But at least somebody should be documenting these things because that's what it usually happens. Like, it's just a weird collection. That's why it all goes back to Charles Hoyfort, the first, yep. really the first guy on record to kind of like make a card catalog of 25,000 plus or whatever these incidents that he was coming across and realizing like no one else is doing it. Not that he saw a screenplay in it, of course, in the, in the late 19th century, but just having an interest in this. And it's like, if you call these things together, is there a pattern? Are there rules? Again, getting back to the question of, of one of the things that uh, been meaning to ask you here. First, again, we had to get to the expert, Alan Bates, Alexander Leak, being asked by John Klein, You know, asking him personally, because that's part of it, is that Alexander Leake experienced this himself, something traumatic and gripping that eventually, as he says, you have to come to the question of, do you want to know or do you just want to live? Yeah. Do you want to keep searching this until you get into madness? Or do you want to get on with your life? And he's chosen to forget about it. That's why he says, I can't talk about this anymore. Right. But his question was, Richard Gere's question to him was, didn't you just need to know? And his answer was, we're not allowed to. Yeah, That goes to my rules, (laughs) we bring up on the show quite a bit. Are there just some things that, uh, yes, on one hand, you may not be able to figure out being a human uh, of average intelligence, or two, in addition, is it something you're not really supposed to know? And so therefore, you will not find an answer to it. And so you can document it, you can record it, you can try to understand it, which is healthy, But at some point, don't go chasing your tail trying to find an answer that you're going to understand because it's just not been made available to us. To me, that's the tragedy of humankind
2: is a recognition of the invisible and the intangible and the immaterial followed by the all-too-human desire to explain, categorize, define, codify, and ultimately, over the course of centuries, turn into religions that suddenly you look at, and it's like a game of paranormal telephone
1: views expressed by our guests are yes. not necessarily those of astonishing legends <laughs> yes. but no it and is we usually true. don't as far as like what we believe will tell you directions and i don't think it's not necessarily mutually exclusive to believe in some form of religion and also that these strange things are happening and i think the first step is being able to accept the fact that strange things are happening and do seem to happen that aren't supposed to right. i've said that before and as like if you can make that first step Because that goes against so many people's origins of belief and where they draw the line of what's possible and not. And that kind of challenging is very uncomfortable to many people. And that's totally understandable. I get that. And to
2: clarify, this isn't a judgment of people. It's the judgment of the value of a system. Look, if going to a church, going to a synagogue is an experience of community, if it's one of friendship and extended family and compassion for those people and the world in general, and often it is, that's great. Yeah. If it strays into the area of we have the answer and we've been given permission to hurt those who don't believe the answer, Right. that would be fundamentalism and sort of the far reaches of what can go wrong right. with organized religion. And I think if you go back to Charles Ford, who you were talking about a minute ago, I'm not sure if he said this, but it feels like he did. The enemy is belief. Don't believe that nothing happens. Right. And don't get to a point where you believe everything happens or you believe in anything that you hear, but try to walk a middle path. Right. Try to, of course, science exists. Of course, if you are having a health issue, you go to a hospital where science will be applied toward helping you. But that doesn't mean philosophically you have to also say anything that is not currently understood isn't happening. It's either, yeah, it's exactly. either a mistake, a mental illness. That's the part I don't get. Right. It's almost like the caveman skeptic going, well, there's no such thing as lightning. That's just something happening in your brain that makes you think you see lights in the sky. You're clearly, it's a subjective experience that has no objective reality. Right. The things that people are experiencing now UFO experiences, supernatural experiences, may possibly be one day understood and even understood to a certain degree within the realm of science.
4: All right, so I'm going to go ahead and cop to some ignorance here, but you remember last year when we had that sponsor that was custom-making clothes for us, and when we were talking about them, you used the word bespoke to describe what they did? Of course. Do you also remember that I had no idea prior (laughs) to that moment what bespoke meant?
1: Of course. Yes. It it means dealing in or producing custom-made articles.
4: Well, now I like to pretend that I've had bespoke in my vocabulary for years, and I get to do that because of our new sponsor, bespokepost.com. And now you know what it is means. Totally. And I already got my first box from them, and I got to tell you, it did not disappoint. All right. Well, what'd you pick? I went to their website, and I selected The Weekender. Oh, yeah. Well, I almost picked that one myself. I got to tell you, this bag is amazing. It's a vintage-looking canvas weekend bag, and it's just so cool-looking, and more importantly, extremely well-made. It's got rivets and stuff, and (laughs) and then the packaging it came in is so cool. Additionally, it came with a card inside of it with life pro tips on airport travel and how
1: to do it right with eating and drinking while you're on the road. Road. Pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's super cool about the Weekender bag? It looks like that first close-up shot you see in the beginning of an old heist movie like Loophole or the original Italian Job. Nice. <laughs> the other thing is it's just so
4: functional. It holds way more stuff than it seems like it should, and I love that when you're not using it, it folds flat, so it's easy to put away. It's based on a design that stonemasons used to use, so I guess you could say... I'm a Mason
1: now. No, no, that, that's not the way it works. Anyway, you're <laughs> bearing the lead here. Uh, You've been in the shafts. <laughs> no one's going to know what that is either. Uh, just Google Tom Hanks' uh, slappy white story. Mm, yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's the thing about bespokepost.com it's not just about the weekender bag, they have tons of super cool stuff just for men, and it's changing all the time. Bespoke Post is a subscription club with boxes that are $45 in all kinds of categories. Grooming, food, drink, travel, pretty much anything you can think of if you're a
4: super cool dude like we are. (sighs) Here's the way it works once you subscribe. Boxes are assigned the first day of each month, but there's no commitment. You get five days to check out the one you got assigned, and you can either pick a different box or just skip any of them without a penalty. Check
1: out trythepost.com slash legends now or use code legends at checkout and get twenty percent off your first box. That's try thepost.com slash legends or promo
4: code legends.
3: This is Galena. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: Right. So one thing I wanted to bring it back to, when you have things happening like lightning and oog and ugh, you know, try and make sense of it or deny it or just think it's the gods, quote unquote, I think you have either the ancient text, like you said, over the over the thousands of years being passed down as either a source of information or spiritual things happening to people. All of the more negative connotations that get tied onto that. Like you said, like, we have the answer, follow us. If you don't, we're going to harm you or be against you in some way. That's all human overlay. That's people's agenda and motivation being laid on top of something else, either belief system or whatever, with their own, you know, goals added to that, which may or may not be helpful.
2: And this is thousands of years after the original purportedly supernatural event occurred, whenever well, exactly. these, right. these divine words were given to man. Now think about what's happening to John Keel in Point Pleasant. Right, He's right there as it's happening, trying to interpret it in the moment and not having much luck. Right. So again, it's this sort of millennium long game of telephone where the person on the other end is injured cold. I mean, it's gonna be tough enough to make sense of it in the moment, much less, Thousands of years later, which again is why one of the messages of the movie, and also one of my personal philosophies, is acknowledge that this stuff may be happening, and it may not be, you know, a human being mistaken something or lying. There may be very strange things going on. If you believe any of this at all, as you guys (laughs) like to say,
1: yeah, yeah,
4: well done.
2: And yet at the same time, accept it for what it is. But the harder you work at pinning it down and interpreting it into human terms and human laws and human behavior and human answers, that's where human tragedy lies. And that's what the movie is ultimately about.
1: Right. I think we have to be cautious when somebody says they either can tell you exactly what it is or what it isn't, or it's all baloney or that it's all true, it's like, I say, gather all the information and make up your mind for yourself. That's what we always try and say here. We're not telling you, people get upset because you're challenging right. their beliefs and it's uncomfortable. We realize that, but we're not telling you what to believe. We're presenting the story. And again, much like Kiel does, here's what happened in objective and entertaining ways I can put it, but you're going to have to decide.
2: Right. And even the great channelers and psychic mediums whatever is being transmitted through them is being transmitted through their physical body. Right. And, and many of them acknowledge that. They say, as it's coming through, it's not a direct translation. Yeah, exactly. I'm using, even if I'm unconscious, right. while it's happening, it's still being filtered through a physical medium, literally the medium of their body. right? And that right there is going to act as a prism to take that information and bank it off a little bit. Right. We're not getting anything straight.
1: Yeah. Well, that's kind of like in the one Star Trek, the next generation episodes, Jean-Luc Picard has to communicate with a foreign captain and he can't communicate because he realizes later that they communicate all by story and metaphor. So nothing is really kind of literal, but once he does, he gets it. It's like, I understand what he's saying, but I'm not making sense of the message Yes, right. he's speaking English in a very stilted, weird way, but I'm maybe not picking up what was trying to be said. Right. And I think there's a very personal angle on, on this, which Alexander Leak points out. It's like when he's talking to Richard Gere, and he says, what you really want to know is why me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I singled out? Why is he, the universe or the other Endred <laughs> Cold saying, happy couple, you, right there. Yeah, yeah. You looked at me, now I've noticed you. And now this is going to happen to you. Again, it's all personal. You know, politics is all local. So why, why And me? it's part
2: of the rules.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Did you attract it? Or are you just part of a, a bigger yeah. matrix? Just now your turn. Yeah. And, and some people Did never you, get a turn.
2: Either you opened the door or something else opened the door, but you paused at the doorway and looked through and maybe even walked through. And why would you not expect that to have an effect?
4: In terms of the construct of the film, and to be clear, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but just to be clear, once it was written, you were not involved in the actual production of the movie. That's right. That's why lines wound up in it that you didn't write.
2: Yeah, there were certain changes made. I mean, I I will say that I was so happy that overwhelmingly what you're seeing in the movie is 90% my first draft. Wow, that's cool. That's, that is a and great that percentage. that never happens. No, I know. I know. Um, the director had a lot of respect and a lot of interest in what that story was. And yeah, shout out to Mark so, Pellington,
4: by the Mark way. Mark Pellington, yeah. So, yeah.
2: And he even said to me early on when he was sort of coming on the project, we had one phone call and he said, look, here's the way I work. I go, I make the movie. And I have a couple of guys that I work with, my sort of creative brain trust. If I need lines written or scenes rewritten, we do it together. That's just how it goes.
1: Of course, he's going to call John Milius, not you. But right, <laughs> well, really actually, yeah, these with. were friends of his. I, I oh, don't know, yeah, yeah. These
2: were people he worked with in I don't know how long he'd been working with them. If he right. still works with them, but these were guys, friends, whatever they were. But this was his brain trust, yeah. and that's like this is how I do it. And at that point, what was I going to say? Right. I, we chatted a bit. It. Felt like he understood the movie. And, you know, I can give you more background, but for now, let's just say... I said, good luck and God bless and invite me to the premiere. And that's pretty much what happened. And (laughs) uh, I was happy with the results.
4: Yeah. Well, it's cool. It came out really cool. What are some of the scenes that you felt you really got your message across or that you were glad made it into the final film, for example? Did you have, because I know that one thing that really stuck with me when I watched the movie and Forrest as well, and we've talked about this a lot. In fact, Forrest, I think, has actually referenced it on more than a few episodes to explain other things that we've talked about. You know, make an attempt at explaining. And that was the whole window washer analogy scene that oh, right. happened with okay. Professor Leak. And right.
1: No, because during the Mothman episode that we did, not, and first not knowing or realizing that we knew you in a roundabout way, I thought that was an excellent way of explaining a perspective of why these things are happening, or even basically any kind of premonition in general. Well, yeah. And, yeah,
4: and for our listeners
1: well, who might not have seen the film,
4: can you tell a little bit about what happens in that scene? Just a, um, a brief well, overview.
2: Yeah, it's a discussion. You know, Richard Gere's character, John Klein is feels like he's getting information from an otherworldly source and makes the assumption that most of us do that if it is otherworldly and non-physical, it must be advanced. It must be smarter, better, morally pure, somehow intellectually superior. And this was something I was trying to deconstruct, because that always happens. And my feeling was I want to deconstruct that notion and de-deify the notion that disembodied voices no more, are smarter, are more advanced, have transcended us in any way. So in trying to figure that out, I came up with the analogy of the window washer. The window washer might be 25, 30 stories up, and they can see way down the road. And so they may see a car accident or a parade coming or a herd of buffalo. You're on the ground. You can't see that. That doesn't make the window washer any smarter than you. It just means they have a different perspective. They're looking at things from a slightly different angle, which gives them, and especially in this movie, when you're talking about possible future events, right? they see things from a different perspective, but it doesn't mean they're smarter, better anything like that. And again, it's an assumption we make that we should not make. What made you think of that? I mean, it's like, yeah, how do you come up with any? It was literally (laughs) just, how do I explain this in layman's terms? Because again, the goal was not to get to a place of anything that is speaking to you is sort of your spiritual superior. And it is like a teacher, because that would have led to a very different kind of dialogue. That would have been sort of the, when you meet a very wise person, right? you know, or that moment you're in college and you're listening to the professor and you suddenly realize, oh my God, I am a toad and they are, you know, a genius. Yeah. And you have those feelings too. And I, I was just trying to look for the inverse. As I was telling you earlier, Forrest, it's all part of the gift of writing. <laughs> <laughs> the the craft, The miracle yeah. of metaphor. I oh,
1: see. And then you basically just knocked around a bunch of things like... Well, what if no, you're the uh, the subway worker and it's like you're blo- No, no, you need above. Uh we go through professions.
2: Right. You need something yeah. higher up that isn't yeah. any smarter. You're right. And nothing <laughs> against window washers, but no, really. no, but, no. but see,
1: no, but that's a great point because it, it's a different perspective. And the fact that that perspective of Indrid Cold, whatever it is, is just from somewhere else, much in the same way, like you said, if you go back to caveman times, they cannot conceive of a window washer, let alone a window. They can't conceive of a very tall building that you glass, it needs to be washed from the outside. How do you do that? If you said that to a, uh, Somebody even from uh, 2000 BC, it's like, yeah, we got tall structures, tall-ish, but certainly not great glass that needs to be cleaned from the outside. So their concept of well, that is it's like if you said there's somebody way up that can see things that you can't. Well, they can understand that because, yeah. again, that is the question. What is their purpose? What and, do they and want? And maybe
2: it's benevolent, but their way of communicating is so foreign to us as humans, it can't help but be terrifying and feel
1: Dangerous. Exactly. Well, that was well done, I thought, in the movie The Arrival, which came out just last year. Oh, yeah. You have these giant squid cephalopods that have this... uh, No spoilers. No, no. But they have a way of communicating that's made clear in all the trailers, Scott. Don't worry about it. You hate spoilers. But it's iconographic in a way that we don't really understand it. We can certainly understand icons, but these are so foreign... That we're not getting it. Now, my only beef with the screenplay, again, I get it. I get it because that's the metaphor of the movie and the story. In that case, they are more physical beings. They arrived in a ship that's metal and this and that. Right. Either, even though there's right. a temporal exchange of about when did this happen, when is when. But when they communicate with their squid ink blots, all right, we get that that's how they communicate. But what are they saying? My only beef was that they are an advanced civilization at this point. They should at least be understanding what we're trying to say. You're squid that built a ship and got here.
2: And they came here intentionally. Yeah.
1: Did they not study
2: us at all? Yeah, Did they exactly. make That's no my preparations right, whatsoever? Right,
1: right. We'll, we'll kind of wing this when we get there. Like, it's a thousand-year journey. But don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. But I get that in that sense of the metaphor of, like, trying to communicate, and it's just so foreign. The difference here is that this is not squids on a spaceship. It's something that is. That was the original title the for that. The squids on a ship. Yeah, uh, on I would have gone to see it. Yeah. Frankly, I would have gladly paid money that <laughs> several times to go shell that out. The idea, though, is that this is something different and that they even look like us if that's how you want to see them and that's comfortable to you, or it's something we don't know. It's like you said, we look different. Depends on who's looking at us. We may be squids in a ship, but. The purpose is what are they trying to do and how are they trying to communicate that? Well, that's not lining up. And even, like you said, they're not so advanced that they themselves are having trouble figuring that out. Now, Scott relayed a story, I believe it's from Kiel's book, about this men in black type going into a diner and just like, "Menu, don't know, food, please. Oh, yeah. That was in uh, 1967,
4: a guy walked into Max's Kansas City in New York. That's right. And sat down to eat. And he couldn't read the menu. And the waitress was like, what do you want? And after some... He spoke English. Yeah, but not very well. And it was very hard to communicate. And she finally said steak. And he was like, yes, yes. And so she brings out the steak. And she described him as kind of weird looking and uncomfortable. Humanistic,
1: mostly. Humanistic. (laughs) They put
4: the plate down with the steak on it. And he looks all around the restaurant and sees everyone using the knife and fork. And it's clear that he's confused about that. So the waitress cuts his steak for him and then shows him how to use the fork and how to cut it. And then he ravenously like eats it up and she asks him where he's from. And he says, another world. And that was in Max's in 1967. With he, a couple he meant, of months. Keel wrote I mean, about it. Right, he yeah. he well, meant another course. borough, but yeah, he's,
1: yeah. <laughs> he's just not been used to that. Yeah, but Keel wrote
4: about it in his book. That's one of the many, like, fascinating little just side stories that he has in his book. Of, oh, yeah. You know, but we, that, yeah, yeah, the, yeah,
1: but I always say that that's how you, you should, somebody should be documenting this because that's how you start to understand something. You start the dialogue rather than ignoring the conversation.
2: Right. Or as Charles Ford said, you know, you can begin measuring a circle from any point. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, yeah. I love that. Yeah.
2: I'm all for gathering evidence as much as you can and in any way you can and accepting the evidence when it does present itself and not approach it as this is something that must be torn down. Right. Right. The minute certain words are used, my job as a rational person is to tear this down. Yeah. Because this is... Is not allowed. This is not appropriate uh, dinner conversation.
4: Yeah. Well, you know? and we get that. And, 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 and there's so that. many. Yeah, there's so we get many. We that people kind of feedback our on our show right now. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah who, who just their point of view is there's appropriate dinner table conversation and there is inappropriate dinner table conversation. And when you get into those subjects, they can only be talked about in one way. And that way is
4: that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, wait, I said that. That's, That's okay. all right.
4: I was just sitting here thinking we've gotten almost through the whole show without, we've, we've have, we have without a $25 Richard's budget. potty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: We do have a $25 budget for Sarah, our editor, to use the 1K tone to bleep things. Yeah, so that yeah. was one. Uh, you got eight more. And you then, really uh, should.
4: Yeah. yeah, I just want a lot of bleep sound. Uh, <laughs> We couldn't make that
1: happen. Well, we're trying to find an on the f*** button.
4: Well, so having not been at the shoot, here's a curious question. Did you ever, for example, maybe meet uh, some of the people that were in the film after it was made?
2: Yeah, actually, I met Richard Gere before the film was made. Oh, you did? Yeah, and even before Mark Pellington was involved in the project, early, early on, there was another director who was briefly involved, and the producers and that director and I flew out to Baltimore Oh wow. To meet with Richard Gere, who was there with Julia Roberts filming The Runaway Bride. So this was early ninety nine, <laughs> wow, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, this was amazing for me. It's like, oh my gosh, they're they're putting me on an airplane and yeah. I'm I'm you know, I'm not even in flying in steerage. Right. <laughs> right. So, well, uh, two Richard Gear stories. Yeah. Okay. The first one is, well, we met twice. Once was at sort of a brunch coffee at the hotel in a private room. And the second time was the next night at dinner in a big restaurant. So the first story is we're at the hotel in this sort of like really nice conference room on a second floor with big windows and really beautiful place, but just big enough for 10 people to sit around a table and meet each other and say hello and talk about the movie a little bit because they were courting him to play the lead. So we're there and the waitress comes in to start taking our orders. And this is a waitress at the hotel, yeah. you know, in Baltimore, <laughs> right, on right. right on the water, sort of in the touristy area, but she did not expect to see Richard Gere. So she's taking orders and suddenly she notices him and you can see the tumblers fall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she gets, she takes everyone's order and gets right up to him and says, uh, sir. And he's looking at the menu and he does that thing where you sort of look up really quick and you realize, oh, the waitress is here, but I haven't figured this out yet. Yeah. And he says, oh, skip me, skip me. And she takes a breath. And then she looks back at him and says, I would never skip you, Mr. Gear. <laughs> <laughs> right. And
1: yeah.
2: he, he looks up from his menu at her and just time stops. Yeah. And he puts his arm around her and pulls her in for a hug. Oh, oh yeah. that's nice. And was just the sweetest guy. And everyone like breathes a sigh of relief that, oh, You don't thank know. God, yeah. Because you never
1: know. No, no. Yeah. Call the managers. I will not stand for this recognition. <laughs> I want
2: her fired for <laughs> looking me in the eye. You know, not at all. Yeah, and it's no, just, so it's nice. great when yeah. something like that happens. Yeah. And yeah. It, it happens more than you, you would uh, expect. Right. But the second story is then later the next night, we're at a big, you know, midtown restaurant restaurant and we're at a big table in the middle and there's all these people around us and it's loud and there's bottles of wine and we're all drinking. And I'm at one end of the table, the sort of rectangle and gears at the other end and and we're all talking and you know, I've had a glass of wine. Oh. <laughs> you guys have seen me. Well, unfortunately, uh,
4: yeah, but it's a blurry night. Was there wine the there? Me- I don't know. The memories guess. are fuzzy. They're mostly sidecars. <laughs> sure. But still, we, okay. we were having
2: a good time. Yes. And we're talking about the philosophy in the movie, and someone says something to me, and I basically say, well, that's my whole point. There is an answer, but we as humans on this plane will never be able to get that answer. And that's when Richard Gere almost stands up out of his chair and says, and that's where you're wrong. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I believe you can. And of course, my understanding of this is that his interest in Buddhism yes. allows for a, a certain degree of human enlightenment. Right. And a justification for traveling that path in the human form and not just waiting until you die for an answer, but actually trying to get that answer now. And that was great. And it was really fun. And it's also when I thought, is it going to be a problem? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Is he philosophically not on board with this movie? Yeah. Now, that was easily a year and a half, two years before he ultimately signed on to do the movie. He's a notoriously difficult actor to get to commit. Right. And that road was circuitous. And again, not to get too much into the craft, but... That script that I wrote was rewritten many times. I was going to ask you about that.
4: In many directions. That happened to my wife with a film that she wrote and it yeah. was it was crazy how many, like 10 rewrites. And I knew nothing about
2: it. I just but her draft, that, what
4: was produced was not 90% of what she wrote. Like well, you said, it's, it's a miracle that so much of your original material was in there.
2: That was the miracle. The yeah. miracle was when Mark Pellington came on because the original director dropped out for whatever reason and took a long time and gear did another movie and all this stuff and And finally, they went back to Mark Pellington, and he had done Arlington Road for Lakeshore. Yes, sure. And they had shown him an early draft of the script, my first draft, the draft that I sold to Lakeshore. And then years later, they sent him whatever was the current draft. And they said, look, we still want you to do this movie. And he read it, and he's like, wait a second, this isn't what I read the first time. And they're like, well, there have been some changes. So Mark Pellington said, send me every draft. Wow. And they sent him 10 scripts. And he read every draft, and then he pointed to the one on the far left, the first one, mine, and said, that's the movie I'll make.
4: That. It wow. just, that doesn't happen. Yeah. It that doesn't never happen. never happens. Again, hats off to Mark Pellington for- Absolutely. Doing the diligence on it, on the yeah. story. Yeah. And it's then, amazing.
2: And there was something that appealed to him about it. And again, that was the nice thing, was that the people who got it were the right people. Because right. when the movie was written- and I tried to sell it. And, you know, of course, my dream was this would be a giant movie. And it was a giant movie. But, for instance, there were large studios that were thinking of buying it for large sums of money. Yeah. But their concern to me was they said things like, well, when is the scene where he fights the Mothman.
4: Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yeah, that's,
1: well, of course. <laughs>
2: and, yeah. and that's when I know, okay, well, Giant Studio, don't you realize I'm asking you to spend $65 million making a movie that has no ending
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no satisfactory
2: conclusion whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah. Yeah. and and they we all. We love that went, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, we think Ron Howard has something else to do this month. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, right. so th- there was a lot of reluctance, and yet there was one company that went, "Oh, we get it. That's what it's about. It's about the fact that there aren't answers, and that's cool. That could be a really creepy, unsettling movie. And the character does arrive somewhere. So anyway, that was uh, that was right. the story.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, the only way you get away with that is that the, he does fight it, he kills it, but then there's a little bit of evidence. Like, is it dead? Damn- you know, right, You're yeah, setting yourself up for the, son the, of the Moth, sequel. man. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there's your next one right there. Do you remember when drag-and-drop web page apps and sites first came out? Oh yeah, they stank. (laughs) Well, they were impossible to use. It would never do what you wanted, and after days and sometimes weeks of messing around, you'd find that you created a clunky-looking page that was already three years out of date stylistically. (laughs) Those days are over, and of all the options out there, and I've tried more
4: than one, i got to say my favorite is Squarespace. When we moved our site over to them, I was able to pick out a theme that I loved within minutes, and populating it with our previous content was a ton easier than what I was using. Used to doing with our old site.
1: Yeah, and it looks great now. Squarespace's award-winning designs really are top notch. I remember you sending me links to dozens of theme marketplace websites like we used to have to use, and they either had a thousand themes that you had to go through to find the only one in there that was halfway decent, or they had just like eight of them that were amazing, but absurdly expensive with costly annual subscription renewals.
4: Yes, and more than once, themes we were using were completely abandoned by their designers after just a year or two, and as a result, became unsupported. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Squarespace was absolutely the right choice for us when it came time to make our next move with our website, and doing that with them
1: was a piece of cake. We've been told by more than a few new podcasts on the scene that our show was a large part of what inspired them to get started in podcast. There's a ton of new shows out there now, and the pool is increasing daily. It's really important to stand out in a sea of choices, not only with your show, but with your online presence too. So whether you've got a new podcast, creative business, restaurant, online store, or you just want your own unique webpage, Lock down your next move now by getting a Squarespace website set up as an online destination that you can be proud of without having to spend hours creating it. And with their award-winning 24-7 customer
4: service, even if you do hit a snag, they're there to help you. You never have to install, patch, or
1: upgrade anything either. Make your next move with Squarespace now. Use our offer code LEGENDS for 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That offer code again is LEGENDS, L-E-G-E-N-D-S. Squarespace, make your next move. You know what's crazy? Me? Y- yes, but well, besides that. No, no what? <laughs> I was thinking the other day how some of our sponsors have grown along with us since we started out. Oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're so right. Yeah, well, for example, Blue Apron is now the number one fresh ingredient
4: and recipe delivery service in the country. Wow, you know what? That's impressive. It's not surprising to me, though. We love it at our house.
1: Well, they've done it by staying true to their mission of making incredible home cooking
4: accessible to everyone. The great thing for me is how easy they make it to fix that amazing home cooked meal in about 40 minutes. And it's not just about getting the exact right amount of pre-portioned ingredients, which eliminates food waste. It's also a huge relief for me psychologically because trying to figure out what to make for my family after a day of cramming knowledge on Skinwalkers or the Mothman is virtually (laughs) impossible. Blue Apron is easily saving me at least 30 minutes every time I go to the grocery store, because what happens to me is I always wind up standing in the aisle with a vacant stare, like a deer in the headlights.
1: I think I'm a better meal planner than you. So I don't really have that issue. But what I like about Blue Apron is how responsible they are as a company. Most of the packaging they ship you is recyclable and their seafood is sustainably sourced, beef is responsibly raised, and all of their produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming.
4: I think I've posted more than a few pictures of the meals I've made on our Instagram and Twitter, but now I'm actually taking pictures
1: of them just so I can compare them to how they look on the recipe card. <laughs> yeah, I've actually uh, photographed every meal I've made. I've just never shared it with anybody. <laughs> what, wise <because> choice. <laughs> of, well, I'm afraid, yeah, I'm afraid to be that guy. My new game
4: is to minimize my impact on kitchen cleanup.
1: Yeah, see, now you're advancing to the higher
4: levels. Trying to anyway. Start your journey to becoming a better cook by trying out Blue Apron right now. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash
1: astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
0: I'm Aaron, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
4: All right, so I want to ask you a question. I had two questions. One was, personally for me, when he goes to see Alexander Leake to get the, what's the expert on this stuff? And Leek whips out this book, and it has all of these stories about Mothman sightings all over the world. Does that book exist? No, I wish it did. Even as a prop, I would love to own it, but that's not a real book. No. Okay. With these stories about the other sightings, most specifically Chernobyl, they, they saw there were hundreds of sightings just before Chernobyl. Did you reference that from somewhere or? To my knowledge, that is not true. I you, made so that you, up. You completely made that up.
2: I completely made that up, but for a good, good reason. No, listen, I don't (laughs) have a problem. You're making a cool movie here. I don't have a problem with
4: the fact that you made it up. But you know what's interesting to me, having just produced this series on Mothman that we did in the past year and all the research we did, it is all over the internet as factual sightings that the Mothman was seen at Chernobyl. We're creating our own tulpa.
1: Well, yeah. And and, And in connection with that, here's the interesting part of that, is that that doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true. That you not knowing about that and writing about it, there might be a connection there. You know what I'm saying? Between the two is that, fictionally, you were putting it in as a story point, as a story engine element. However... That may have happened because it's been claimed that right. other tragedies, there's been strange creatures. Yeah, being but seen. that could
4: have all come from that scene he
1: wrote. Well, no, because I uh, because yeah. I, no, here's the thing: is I believe <laughs> those myths, those stories, have happened way before the film, decades. Well, you know, again,
2: this is a movie about a particular snowstorm that I'm using to discuss all snowstorms. Yeah. Well, so, so in other words. Yeah. There are other sightings of large winged creatures for short, sure. elsewhere yeah. in the world. Yeah, It was important to me. And if, you know, in the original script, there is an author's meaning mine, not John Keel, an author's note where I state on the very, the very first thing you read in the script is this is based on real stuff. There have been changes made for clarity, but it's based on real stuff that has never been explained. Enjoy. So already I'm telling the reader, I've taken some liberties and and I'm sort of crafting the narrative to cram home my themes. But one of those things I wanted to end the movie with was the sense that this isn't a one-off. Stuff like this happens all the time. People have experiences like this. And to further sell the notion that, ooh, there's a mothman out there and he shows up when something bad's going to happen... Well, it's just a specter of death. It's like that story that was told on your show about the birds coming into the house. Yeah. Another winged creature that is a portent of death. So, folklorically and mythologically, we're not too far off track. But in point of fact, I had never heard of any Mothman sightings at Chernobyl or anywhere else leading up to any other Bad events.
4: Well, and here's the thing for me is the gravity of the situation isn't necessarily diminished by the idea that it only happened there. I'm sure that some people want to latch on to, oh, this thing's been around for thousands of years and appearing every time, you know, whatever. And I don't know what that accent was, but anyway. But um, (laughs) the point being that, to me, just happening in one place and the connection with Endred Cold and all that stuff... In some ways, that's even creepier in terms of like what's happening. I love that scene in the movie and it is cool and it added weight to it. But I'm saying here in the real world, I'm not bothered by the idea that it might be the only place the Mothman's ever been seen. In fact, in terms of cryptozoology, it it makes kind of more sense to me in a way. The other stories that you're talking about with large wing creatures, there are not Native American cultures, but uh, well, the, Aboriginal the, cultures right. that have reported basically pterodactyls like flying off with kids.
1: No, no, we always have... The, right. <laughs> the, the, uh,
4: no, the, the Thunderbird. know why no, no, I'm laughing at that. It's not funny. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, yes.
1: And the, the Thunderbird idea. as well. Yeah. No, that's throughout, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of human uh, yes. evolution and civilization, there have been these tales of stories and not necessarily connected with a tragedy. But of course, that's the human nature part of it is that, you know, you see this and then a day later, something bad happens. Well, there's a right. the connection. We're born and designed to make connections because it keeps us alive. It's like, hey, I just saw the giant Thunderbird circling three times over the village. Let's all be on the lookout for something. But the idea, though, is that you have these things that are connected that even John Keel talked about. It's like, it's not just the Mothman. Now you have UFOs and Sasquatch and ghosts. All these things are opening up So is it a portal? Is it some kind of thing that's triggering it? Is there a connection to tragedy? That was one thing in the movie that you also said that that seems to be, it opens you up to that.
2: And now I figured out a way to tell my story. Oh, Uh, yeah. The The poltergeist story. Yeah. So there were so many things happening in Point Pleasant that covered such a range from UFOs, men in black, ghosts, poltergeists, phone calls from the dead, phone calls from other entities, precognitive dreams, all kinds of stuff was going on. And a scene that I wrote that I really wanted to get into the script but never quite made it to screen was when John Klein first arrives in Point Pleasant and Connie is kind of bringing him around saying, well, this person has a story and this person has a story and this person. And they go to the house of this one old woman. And it's that typical, you know, with the doilies on the, the, you know, the the, the Davenport with the, you know. The um, jar
1: of the pillow candies all stuck together. Exactly.
2: You know, and everything looks like you're going to break it, you know. (laughs) And she brings out the tea set and is so glad to have visitors on a Sunday and is explaining everything that she's experienced. And as she's doing it, In her kitchen, you hear something crash. And she stops for a moment, just listens, smile frozen on her face. Then she continues with her story. Then there's another crash. Then the teacup just starts to rattle on the saucer. Then a book flies off the shelf right there in the room. And John Klein and Kanye are like looking around like, what the hell is happening? And then the teacup just smashes against the wall. And she's so nervous, she immediately starts cleaning it up, the old lady. And she, I'm so sorry. I'm, this has been happening. I'm going to call the repairman. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know repair why. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Her overwhelming reaction to all of this is embarrassment that things are flying around her house when she's trying to entertain guests. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And I just love that that would be her reaction, you know, to all of this, you know. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, (laughs) I'm so sorry. Oh, I wish it would stop. In fact, the movie Poltergeist
1: had a lot of moments. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say that when he goes to the neighbors, like, you ever have anything strange? Was anything strange happening? He's like, what are you talking about? Strange. Right. right. This thing's moving. (laughs) No, we don't. Because that doesn't happen to us. Oh, and, yeah. and we've had other friends kind of comment when we, we said like some other friends something strange has happened to or with their child specifically. It's like, well, that never happens to our child. Yeah. So it's, it's oh. kind of a way of saying that it's like, it's a protective barrier. I get that right. because right, right, this right. doesn't happen. The teacups don't go flying. I don't know why you're embarrassed because now if you're connected with that, you're seen as a kook.
2: And just the very fact that people react to this stuff. And I also love the stuff that was in the movie where, where some of what they're experiencing is very beautiful and, and bordering on the romantic. And again, early on, there were more scenes like that. There were scenes where John Klein had Connie over to his motel room, and he's like showing her stuff on the VCR, yeah, and he's showing her his evidence, and she's like, "Is this a date?" <laughs> right,
4: right. He's right. like,
2: "Well, well, yeah. I mean, we got a pizza. There's some wine, but look <laughs> right. at now. But let me lay out some Polaroids here. Now, do yeah. you see something in any of these?" And she's right. like you can really got to work on your game. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, you got me into your motel room, but yeah. really now you just want to show me your UFO books, which <laughs> right. I mean, basically right. is the story of my life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this, yeah. this is how I do it. But I, I love the moment where they're at the town gathering and they're waiting for the lights in the sky and yeah. they, they're holding each other's hands. You know, there were moments like that that I really wanted.
1: Sure, right. Then the antithesis is, is like, he gets a phone call that was not supposed to happen. And basically she then realizes that, Either he's lying and he's crazy, or it's a phone call from the dead, as you said before. Right, yeah. And then I, I suppose she goes, I don't like this. Yeah, it's not yeah, yeah, to yeah.
2: Happen. And again, you know, you guys will have to tell me, because it's hard for me, even when I saw the movie originally, and when I watch it now, to what degree do you get the sense at the end of the movie that things you saw throughout the movie were the phenomena's attempt to say, the bridge is going to collapse? The sounds, the images, because yeah. again, that was something that was very sort of forward in the script, but I'm not sure that to what degree that ever lands, that in those moments you're like, oh, the screeching sound over the telephone was the sound of, oh, the, of yeah. the cables. Yeah. You know, this was something's idea of, well, guys, how could I be any more clear?
1: Uh, right, right. I
2: called you on the phone and played the sound of cables yeah. l- stretching and whining about to snap. Ah. Now, come on, how much clearer could I be, you know? Right. Indrid Cold is slapping himself on the forehead going, I told you, and I told you, and I told you. <laughs> yeah.
1: you never listen. Right. But that's the point, and that's what's great about a movie, and this is what I love about it. It's really good writing. I learned this in film class from Edward Dimitrik, a great old-time uh, film director. Oh, yes. He's passed, yes, he's passed away now, but he's just almost, a, I would say, just genius in his approaches, because it's practical yet artistic in that his thing was that film, you don't have to telegraph it. This isn't a play on stage where you have to say everything or a book where that you, you just have words. It's like, it's a visual medium and aural. So it's, you have sound and you have images to play with as well as uh, dialogue. And so I love it when things aren't subtle, but it's picked up subconsciously. So like when you say like the screeching, like the metal, the twisting and the cable snapping, I love it when I'm not aware of that. It's not brought attention to itself. Right. It's not obvious where it's like, oh, okay, the bri- there's going to be a bridge collapsed. Well, of course, if you know the story, you yeah. know that's coming at some point. But I still want to be surprised. I want that suspension of disbelief. And somehow, uh, subconsciously, it
2: works Exactly. Way in, so hope it does.
1: I would say it's, it's more on that level. And the fact that I can't tell you that like, oh, yeah, after the first 10 minutes, I know that was happening. Oh, yeah. Is a, is a tribute to the film because I also don't want to be brought out of it.
4: All right. So here's something else I want to ask you about. When you came here today, you brought some business cards, what appeared to be John Keel's original business cards. Did you meet him in this process at any point?
2: I, I love how your implication is that I have met manufactured these. <laughs> no, I... <laughs>
4: he <was> like, <laughs> <laughs> they appear well, he's crazy. mythical. He's yeah. mythical. Are, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, no, I did meet him. He, uh, I met him on two occasions, once in November of 1998 and once in February of 2001. And it was really interesting meeting him in person because I absolutely... Like, I, I had that sort of thing where I'm going to meet you know, again, an advanced being. Yeah. It's like like if you're going to meet John Lennon. Yeah. You kind of feel like it's going to be transformative. And I'm going to look into that person's eyes and I'm going to see the magic and the knowledge and the genius and the creativity. But most people, when you meet your John Lennon. Yeah. They're just like, oh, hello, how you doing? <laughs> that was my Liverpool accent. Not bad. Yeah, yeah it's pretty yeah, good. Right. Pretty good. And, uh, you guys should practice together. Yeah. And it's very dull and they sign your piece of paper and you move on. Right. And with John Keel, he was a, just a great storyteller and a, a really lovely guy with a great sense of humor who, who, again, loved to talk. And yet, on no level did he carry with him what I assumed would be the gravity of someone who lived through those events. And when I asked him about the events... He didn't suddenly take on right. a very serious demeanor and reach out and, and grab hold my a flashlight wrist. under
4: his chin. <laughs> right, exactly. And go,
2: run, run, young man. Don't yeah. ask these questions. Right. I've lived through it. You don't want to. Well, he was not yeah, Alexander Lee. The Alexander League League, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got to no, talk about this. No, he would just refer to it offhand and then start talking about some movie he saw. Yeah. You know, on no level. I mean, for whatever those events were, I think he had processed them. And the way he processed them ultimately was yes, a lot of weird stuff happens no I don't understand it yeah end of story that was it what's for dinner yeah (laughs) and that's pretty much it I mean I was much more interested in talking about this stuff than he was right yeah you want we all want answers
1: we want insight we want uh, something not only did I
2: want answers I wanted access to his apartment yeah I'm like I want the (laughs) tapes I want the (laughs) notes I want the John Keel collection and by the way where is it yeah. Where is all this stuff? Yeah, I would love to know where all his original notes and and of course what he explains is that when he made these recordings, they just came out as static. was he
4: when he passed away. Was he single? Uh-huh. Did uh huh. He, he was never kids? married
2: and had no children. Right. So what happened to his stuff? He had several close friends who were. Uh, friends of his for decades, but especially later in his life, who also helped him through several health crises. He was a diabetic. I remember when he came out to LA, he was staying at a a house out in West LA. And so I was driving around with him and I was ultimately gonna bring him back to my house up in Altadena to have dinner with my family. But he had just arrived and he wanted to hit a supermarket and get some stuff and kind of stock his place with food that he could eat and i remember being at at ralphs and just standing there in aisle 5 watching him read the sugar content of the chef boyardee <laughs> single serving microwaveable yeah. pastas <laughs> and just staring at him and going wow some people knew him when he was in egypt you know, investigating yeah. the uh, tombs. And and some people were with him in Point Pleasant, experiencing the phenomenon. Fanat- I'm with him at Vaughn's.
1: <laughs> that's almost even more special because it's a mundane pedestrian totally moment.
2: Totally mundane, which of course is the magic of, of the entire Mothman story, yeah. is the way the mundane and the transcendent, you know, just crash together over and over again. Well, they have yeah. to they
1: have to coexist. It's yeah. like you said, even the guy that going to Max's Kansas City Or even if it's a skinwalking wolf creature, they still got to eat. Yeah. (laughs) And conversely, you have to do their business somewhere. So it's like we're all on the same plane for that moment. Yeah. And then we may not be made of the same things or or existing in a different vibrational frequency, but we're sharing a space. And so there you are with a a kind of a legend in the the field.
2: And that's what, you know, and I'll be the billionth person to uh, call out Stephen King, but that's what he did. He, he yeah. took horror out of the castle and put it in the suburbs and in the supermarkets, you know, and yeah. just said, yeah. no, it's happening here right now in our stupid lives. Right. We're watching TV and listening to the same songs on the radio, except some people are listening to those songs in a haunted car. Yeah. <laughs>
4: you know, yeah, yeah
1: exactly. You
2: know, how can you resist that? Right. And the
1: car's
4: picking the songs.
1: Right. Well, that's, uh, yeah. that makes it, Yeah, that's what makes it scary. That's like Poltergeist, you said. You yes. know, like Craig T. Nelson says like, what a beautiful day. What could possibly be going wrong? On a day like this, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. everything, <laughs> you know. Like so, well, speaking of wanting answers, do we have some more? Uh, yeah, questions? Yeah, we do. We
4: have some listener questions. We actually solicited a few questions from listeners. They sent a bunch in. I'm just going to pick a few here, if you don't mind. Rich. No, that's great. Um, I think one of the. Let's see. When I'm taking a look at some of the stuff that came in. Oh, this is an interesting one from Jennifer in Texas. She writes in. What is the mystery or unexplained event that keeps you up the most at night? Um in other words what I find the scariest? Yeah and it's this doesn't necessarily have to be Mothman you obviously have been involved in a lot of different I types I, of I, I
2: think the two things that that freak me out the most are the dark near death experiences cuz then that really messes you up. Yeah. Like the good ones make you feel like oh everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and then the dark yeah. ones are like oh so, in other words, There's death a is just going to be more of the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, and I I love reading this stuff, but the Whitley Strieber stuff,
4: oh, you know, yeah. the yeah. communion and, and yeah. things like that. I mean, that is so... I had a hard time with communion. I have still haven't finished it.
2: Because it's so scary.
4: Yeah, because it freaked me out. Oh,
2: my gosh. My yeah. friend uh, Matt and I read that book at the same time, and we were just horrified. We just call each other up going, wait, what? Did you just read this part? You know, he, he was going <laughs> to call the book body terror because yeah. <laughs> that's what it's about and yeah. that's how it feels. And I'm like, okay. And Whitley Strieber just wrote a book uh, that came out earlier this year with uh, Jeffrey Kripal or Cripple, and where he tells some some stories you haven't heard before and some new things. And something about the experiences he has are so amazingly scary and terrifying. Oh. And to me that never gets old. Okay. The notion that you're going to sleep at night and you're waking up yeah. staring at the insect people. <laughs> That's rough.
1: Yeah. No, that's the basis of everything. That's why the shadow people was such a uh, big uh, bellwether for this show and, and a lot of listeners is that when are you most vulnerable? When you're asleep in your own bed at home when right. the door is locked. None but of that the, matters.
2: But again, I love what you say. That the nice thing is when you do wake up from yeah. the most terrifying incident <laughs> right. of your life, you just go back to sleep.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, When yeah. I wake
2: up to go to the bathroom, I can't go back to sleep. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah.
4: A lot of people yeah. do that though, when they have... No, their- it's a Night very terrors. common thing, yeah. yeah.
1: There's something, and maybe it's something with the that the effect, the phenomenon is like, uh, okay, I got my scare juice out of you. Here's a little uh, after dinner mint where you just go back to sleep, and yeah. or there's something to right. that because people, it's the scariest things, and it's like, yeah, then I nod it off again. Like, no, no, I'm I'm up wandering the house like Christopher Walken with a you know with a firearm out in the yeah, out well, in you, the woods. You know, you know, know. What
2: kills me. Do you guys read the Fortean Times?
1: Yeah,
4: I mean, I'm not in a while, here and there. Yes, yeah.
2: By the way, in the last issue, yeah, a new feature. Podcast reviews. Oh, look at that. Yeah. I I, I, I predict within the year, (laughs) within the year, year, you will find yourselves there. We'll see. Um, But people are always writing in, telling their stories. And what kills me is they always start like this Well, it was the most terrifying event in my life. I believe it happened sometime in the early 80s. Yeah. Like, no. If it's the most terrifying event of your life, you know the day it happened. Yeah. On July 3rd, 1981. Yeah. Right. Na- the early 80s. <laughs> I believe it was sometime in the 90s. Right. No, shut up. I want to know the time, the place, yeah. the day.
1: And oh, but sometimes that is a psychological comfort blanket in that it's clouded now.
4: Well, it also, by the way, I have this super hard time remembering when things, even critical moments in my life, I do not remember dates. Like it's a function, genetic oh, function of okay. how I think. Yeah, with I you, believe-
1: yes. It's, it's, some like, stick and then some things I told him 10 minutes ago and he's just Well,
4: I like, the, I have a thing like where I'll maybe go see a movie with somebody, I'll remember the movie, but I won't remember who I was with. so Right, 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 right. My wife can tell you what the weather was like that day. Like yeah. I can't do that stuff. So I used to be bit. much
2: better at it. I yeah. used to be. I used to fascinate my friends by going, "Oh, well, you know what happened on September twenty first, sixteen years ago, don't you? Right. <laughs> you know, sixteen <laughs> years ago
4: today, here's yeah. what happened. I, I used to be much better. Now, now uh, it's getting tougher. I'm right. old. All right. I have another question for you from Megan Gerard, who is communicates with us a lot. And thank you, Megan. We're glad to have you send in some questions here. Do you think? The Mothman is an extraterrestrial, or more of a trapped ghost of some kind that once had terrestrial ties. Yeah, that's a theme of the like,
1: questions. Like, what do you
4: think? Are those the my Man two is? choices? Ah, uh, no, <laughs> no, no, let's that, go. It's Bring it's, your own. What you want? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I mean, Keel himself was the one who called them ultra-terrestrials. Right. He did not believe, or the evidence did not lead him to suspect that any of these creatures, including creatures who show up in saucers, yeah were really from, you know, physical beings from another world who traveled- Yeah, another galaxy. Galaxies. Yeah. No, not at all. He believed that all of this stuff was Earth-based. And I'd never heard that before either. Yeah. And that was fascinating. And I, and I loved that notion that this is not about contact with an alien culture. It's contact with a foreign Earth-based intelligence.
1: oh okay. Well, that's, yeah, you have a note in here regarding something else, but it's an overlay. That's another dimensional aspect that is still here on Earth, but they're operating on another channel. So it's, it's right. like we always say this is a great analogy that everybody uses in the paranormal world about uh, you're listening to the uh, oldies rock station and then you're out on a road trip and suddenly now, now the, the gospel or the Spanish channel comes filtering <laughs> in. And it's a language (laughs) or it's a manner of speech you don't understand. You're freaking out and and it goes back to your thing. So these experiences are kind of like that. And then a lot of people do believe that, yes, everything that's our reality is existing in a vibrational, an actual frequency. But sometimes if you can kind of mute that or transmute that with another frequency that things pop in that normally shouldn't be here, but they do.
2: Right. And, and some of that may be subjective, or objective or a mixture of both. It might be the right person in the right place at the right time. And the person next to them in the car might be the wrong person in the right place at the right time. And they may not be picking up on that frequency. Right. So again, it's not either or. It's not this thing is wholly outside my body and anyone could see it if they were here. It's also not wholly within my mind and I'm experiencing it the way I'd experience a dream. I mean, when you think about it, Well, all of these things are just subjective experiences. Someone's having, you know, some weird, there's no objective reality whatsoever. Well, frankly, there's no objective reality to dreams. Yeah. Dreams are wholly, entirely anecdotal, wholly and entirely subjective. There has never been an ounce of proof that dreams exist. These are just stories we tell about what happened to us at night. Now you can hook up electrodes to our head and it can show that there's activity going on in the brain, but there's activity going on during the day. Mm -hmm. Nothing about those machines tells us that I looked into a mirror and saw my teeth falling out, you know, or that I was at my high school and it was the math exam and I had forgotten to show up to that class. Or you didn't have your pants on. Or I didn't have my pants on.
1: (laughs) Well, that actually did happen in That's God's context within it. But
2: if you simply increase the number of people in our society or on earth who report for instance, abductions or quote-unquote UFO experiences, and instead of it being 5%, suddenly it was 95%, we would accept it as a reality of our human lives and still not have any more proof of it than we do now, the way we accept dreams.
4: Okay. All right. A couple more. We'll wrap this up. From the Reverend Chris Schnetzer, who is a uh, new convert to the show. I know he just recently started following us on Twitter. He wrote in something that I'm wondering if you've heard about, and he has. um, Growing up in Southwest Ohio and Southeast Indiana, I am very familiar with the Mothman story, but I've also heard of the Owlman. The stories of the Owlman started in the 1800s, but the most recent was just in February of 2016 near Batesville, Indiana. If you look at the drawings, they look very similar, except for the fact the Owlman is white and has a beak. Have you heard of the Owlman? Uh, Yes, the Owlman is total
1: bullshit. No, am just kidding. <laughs> See again, he's telling us what's yeah, real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wouldn't
2: that be great? It's like, oh no, the Mothman exists. Yeah,
1: <laughs> the <laughs> Owl right. Man. No. Oh, <laughs> are you high? <hot? laughs> yeah. <laughs> a beak? Come on.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I'll oh, accept a lot of things. <laughs> well, right, like yeah. I mean, the Owl Man is interesting because owls figure more m- more oh. uh, prominently in UFO stories and in uh, folklore in general. Oh, entire, yes, of course. When the owl books. calls your name. Yeah. 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 That guy, uh, Mike. Clay Elland just wrote a book mm. called The Messengers all about owls and how they figure into UFO mythology, UFO right. sightings, abduction sightings. Oh, that's interesting. Um yeah. And yeah, owls probably make more sense than moths. But of course the name Mothman was oh, yeah, that was some reporter because literally the TV show Batman had just come out a couple of months before. That's the right. First I yeah, we, we reported
1: on that. Yeah, yes. as far as yeah. the, uh, that imagery coming up. But then you put in the, I guess the fake now. <laughs> as, as you write everything down, we were suspect of it. The Ukrainian legend names him as the Mothman. That's, that was in the-
2: Oh, movie. right. Well, you just, yeah. you know, you lay it off on the Ukrainians. Who's
1: going to check up on that? Yeah. <laughs> come on. Anyway, yes, the owl uh well as Leek explains in the in the movie, the night moth is something that comes and it's a harbinger of prophecy and dreams and different uh, messages. It's sure. all about messages and information. Yeah. The owl during the daytime, it could be something good, could be wisdom, could be you're going, to, you're about to die. If it says your
4: name, right? That's the way. I'm that
1: yes, if the, the owl calls your name, that is one legend. But but uh, basically, he's a a fortune cookie message from uh, the paranormal. Right. Yeah. Okay. So finally, there were a
4: couple more questions, that, but you pretty much have answered these already. Uh, we had some from Amy Hood on Twitter. Thanks for sending those in. But I feel like you addressed hey, her her already. And also from the vaunted cryptozoology expert, Lauren Coleman. Oh, yes. oh yeah. Asked, a contemporary. Of yes, sorts. yes. Who asked about when you came across the book, which you explained earlier. Lauren, thank you so much for reaching out to us with a question. Yeah, thanks, man. That's cool. It is very cool. And, and we have uh, one last question. There's another podcast. Uh, this guy, I should say, we're friends with, uh, Jordan Bonaparte, has a show called The Nighttime Podcast. It's similar to ours. He's based in Nova Scotia. And he sends this question in. Richard, can you describe the techniques used to get into the proper headspace to write for Steven Seagal? Did you feel (laughs) you had more artistic freedom knowing Sensei would be playing the part and he can do anything? And he closes with, thank you for Under Siege 2. That is beautiful. <laughs> Listen, the, the experience of
2: writing for Steven Seagal,
4: freedom would not be the first
2: thing that comes into <laughs>
1: right. my so you're mind. You're more con- confined.
2: Uh, yeah. Oh. It was, uh, no, and we actually, that movie was something that my friend Matt Reeves and I wrote about five years after graduating USC film school. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, okay. And our dream was that it would be a sequel to Die Hard, not Under Siege. Uh, uh, we just wanted to write a Die Hard movie and we yeah. put her on a train because that would be boss <laughs> Oh,
1: of course and it's in motion
2: uh, oh yeah yeah exactly in this picture you know <laughs> die hard but at 100 miles an hour yeah, hard target <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and then it sold it was sold to warner brothers and then it was developed into a so we never literally got to write with steven seagal in mind we were writing in 1990s. So we were writing- A John
1: McClane-like character.
2: Exactly. I mean, and our our dream was that it would be, you know, Harrison Ford. Yeah. You know, or Bruce Willis, or at least Kurt Russell. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Yeah, least, uh, come on. Yeah, yeah. Snake Pliskin
1: at the time. Snake
4: yeah. Pliskin would be fantastic, but you know now he's still showing up. Come on, he's in Guardians yeah, 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 of the Galaxy you, too. You so. can't keep
1: him down, exactly.
4: Well, Rich, I just want to thank you. We both do, and our listeners as well, so much for coming into the studio. This has really been a lot of fun. This has been the highlight of my year. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Discovering
2: a- your podcast, meeting you guys, yeah. getting drunk with you. <laughs> well, that was a family- and then doing the podcast.
1: <laughs> Families were involved. That was a family uh, dinner out. <laughs> (laughs) Yes, Um, yes,
4: the first of many We're glad you had a good time because we want to have you back week after next to talk about a story that you actually brought to our attention What?
2: Orfeo Angelucci
4: Yeah, why don't you just give a little teaser about what we're going to be talking about week after next
2: Well, we've talked about, you know, the 70s and the 60s, but this guy I think goes back to the 50s And this is when, unlike Whitley Strieber, when you met up with the space people They were nice to you (laughs) (laughs) yeah they were physically attractive sometimes they
1: the nordic
2: sometimes uh, you can make out with them a little bit yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and they were here to spread a message of hope and knowledge and world unity and the people who had those experiences are known within ufology as the contactees right quite different from abductees okay yes Whitley Strieber was abducted. These people were merely contacted. I feel like George Carlin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Sometimes you're
2: abducted.
1: And other times you're contacted. (laughs) Uh, One's a kidnapping, one's a phone call. Talk about
2: a phone call. You know, I've always wondered why these things seem to take place out in kind of. Unpopulated areas. Yes. You're not. A lot of people aren't saying I was in Manhattan walking down Fifth Avenue, and then I had my alien encounter. They, it just doesn't happen in crowds or crowded cities. Not a lot.
1: Not usually. However, I just read an excerpt from Chris Cogswell from our ARC, one of our research members, where he saw a mention of. A big Robert Bigelow, the billionaire. Oh uh, yeah. uh, saved, Skinwalker Ranch. Stay awake, dude. Yeah. sleep. But the excerpt was from the, I believe it was MIT. I'm hoping that's that it was. It, it was M- MIT. Yeah, MIT yeah. UFO conference. Oh right, where Bigelow was there and some other and some other reporters and somebody was relaying a story about a woman having been abducted, lifted, elevated off her bed out through the window of her 22 story Manhattan high rise. Wasn't that Linda Moulton Howe?
2: She's a a very controversial figure in ufology. Oh, yeah, she is. That's a whole other story. But you would think if this was something that was wholly based within a human being, that certain people have these vivid hallucinations. Well, most people live in big cities, but that's not where you're hearing the stories, right?
4: Am I going to have to finish communion for this episode? Yeah, I think so. No, (laughs) no, no, but you have
2: to read Orfeo. But here's what I loved about Orfeo was that that he's close to literally close to my home. Yeah, his contacts came just off the 5 Freeway in Burbank.
0: At <laughs> the which, Ikea. I mean, the, the could the in could not and out. be
2: more mundane. Right. And could not be more than 20 minutes from anywhere I've ever lived, because I've only lived in LA. Yeah. And he would be driving to his his job at Lockheed, and I believe that's where my grandfather worked. And I don't know if they knew each other. I don't think they did, but I'd give anything if I could find out a connection there. But Orfeo would pull off at, I don't know, Scott Avenue or something yes. underneath a, a, a bridge or something and have these vivid contacts. So anyway, we can all brush up on Orfeo and then we can uh, talk about him. <laughs>
1: Well that's gonna wrap up tonight's show with screen and television writer Richard Haddam. Thank you so much for coming in, Rich. It really was a blast. Rich will be back week after next to join us for the topic he personally selected
4: and we just mentioned Orfeo Angelucci. Special
1: thanks to John Boland.
0: Hi, I'm Trish Burdick. Hi, I'm Galina. Hi, I'm Aaron, and I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however, they see, fit. Galaxy-wide my voice however they, they see fit. Galaxy wide and fit galaxy-wide in perpetuity.
4: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The
1: ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>
0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.